You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. We are supported by listeners like you. Donate per month or make a one-time donation through PayPal or Patreon at wearelibertarians.com. Join in on the conversation. Visit the sidebar at wearelibertarians.com and join our Facebook group, meet other listeners, and get our daily news dump. The Boss Hog of Liberty podcast is the latest hit on the We Are Libertarians network. Each week, Jeremiah Morrill and Dakota Davis explore life in Henry County, Indiana. It's a show about our circle of friends, public officials, and our experiences. 80% observation, life, humor, and 20% politics. Boss Hog of Liberty is the day-to-day happenings of Henry County, Indiana, which is just like your community. Add us on iTunes and sample us today. Dear Leader would want you to. Oh, f- the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week, we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com. You can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty. Rock and roll. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. It's time to shake up your podcast feed, folks, by subscribing to Lions of Liberty, the only libertarian variety show out there. Spend Mondays with me, Mark Clare, as I feature in-depth interviews with great names in the libertarian community and fun roundtable discussions. Electric Liberty Land with me, Brian McWilliams, every Wednesday, your weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty. And Felony Fridays with me, John Odermatt, where I expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at lionsofliberty.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. I'm your host, Chris Spangle. We bring you all of the irreverence modern politics deserves while putting people before political parties. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective with the goal of leaving you better informed. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and subscribe at Patreon at WeAreLibertarians.com. In exchange for supporting our program, we give you all kinds of bonus content and free stuff. This show is crowdsourced, so you can send us news with the hashtag WALnews or in our Facebook group and our Discord channel, all of which you can find at WeAreLibertarians.com. We are always taking your questions and comments via email at editor at WeAreLibertarians.com. Please be warned that the show is raw, unedited, and authentic, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. In this show, we're going to talk uh, about what it's like to serve as an active-duty military person, Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about Facebook, Google, Twitter, and everything that's happening on those platforms. And joining me for this episode, at this, we're actually, uh, we're on a remote broadcast not back at the wall compound we're at dk new media studios Yay! in downtown indianapolis with my good friend doug carr doug how are you doing i am i love having you out here yeah it's so much fun to talk to doug doug's one of the preeminent digital marketing guys in the entire country oh jeez i know setting expectations high there real high <laughs> yeah. and then my upper, 
upping my rates right now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also joining us is George, and George uh, is not his real name. And we're not live streaming tonight just so we can protect George's identity because uh, of various reasons. Uh, but to, to protect his identity means you're going to get more accurate information. So to all of my Patreon subscribers at $10 a month and up, please forgive me that we're not live streaming. I'm, uh, I'm sure it will be worth it. So a lot of pressure on you, George. Uh, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've been, uh, you, I met you um, almost a year ago. At the net, at the state convention. Yeah, the state convention. I saved an open seat at my table, just waited for you to walk in. <laughs> you happened to. Nice. And I sat down, and he goes, "Hi, I'm George. I've listened to every single one of your episodes uh, in the last four months." And then your wife wanted to murder me when she found out who I was because because <laughs> I've heard your voice more than I've heard his voice the last four months. <laughs> That's pretty much right. Whenever I find a podcast I like. I start at episode one, and I just go. Right. I did it with Freakonomics, The Fifth Column, wow. uh, and then also with Wall. With Wall. That's that's commitment. That is commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've got a couple podcasts, Doug. I, it's growing in numbers. Yeah, I've got like five now, so it's getting ridiculous. Five podcasts. Yeah. That's pretty cool, though. It is It is cool. I, I think it's... Uh, it's finally great to see the, the medium kind of take over. And, I'm, and, I, and by the way, I mean, you're... Uh, you know, you're way, way, way before I was getting into this, and everybody should know that Chris has been a resource for me, and and uh, Brad Shoemaker in town, and Jen Eads, and you know, people that have been podcasting for ten years. I probably started five years ago with a a kitty site, you know, to <laughs> record me, and uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm I'm addicted now. I yeah, he's got the he's got the the Sure microphone. I have an, a seven uh, Sure seven MB. Sure, 7B. SM7B. SM7, yeah, thank you. Uh, and then everybody else has the smaller microphones. But you've got like six of the nice microphones. You've got a professional studio with cameras and, and We're getting there. We've got multi. Nice. We've even got a multi-camera live setup now using a, a company called Switcher Studio, which is pretty awesome. So, yeah, we can, and we're, we're starting to get in LED lighting because the lighting in here is really crappy. So, yeah, yeah we're getting there. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's amazing somebody who's into uh, digital marketing. Where do you think podcasting fits in the future? I mean, I can tell you, we've talked about this on your show, actually, yeah. but like to me, radio has always been the most intimate. Yeah. Podcasting, I think, has a, a bright future ahead of it. I, I do, too. I, I feel like it's a, a, I think a lot of people look at uh, podcasting somewhere between text and video, and I think that's a really uh, a terrible way of looking at it. And the reason why is because video has to paint the picture for you. And so you see the story through somebody else's eyes, whereas podcasting, you're listening. And you can hear people's passion, but you get to paint the picture yourself. Right. And, I, and I think that's, a, an, that's really powerful. If you're a good storyteller or a good interviewer, uh, you know, there's nothing like just kind of sitting there with your eyes closed and, and listening to a podcast you know, and painting that picture yourself. George, why do you like podcasts? Well, they're, it's easier to listen to than you know watching a video or trying to stream YouTube. I can download them at home and then listen to them while I drive. Uh, I like to keep my mind really actively engaged. I'm not a big music person, and so podcast is a perfect fit for that. Yeah, uh, especially with anything political or religious based. I'll just 
I play them all the time. Um, sometimes my kids complain about it on the way to school and daycare because they're five and two, <laughs> and so they're a little bit boring for them. So I'll toss my other phone in the back and let them listen to Pandora. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I'm a mental creature too, and so for me, those active moments, like yesterday, I cleaned my entire house, and yeah. I had podcasts on the whole day, and I was listening to a variety of different kinds of shows, different types of topics, and it's great because, you know, in radio – uh, and I think I talked about this in the last episode, you know, my broadcasting background, it's quick, quick, quick. Like the, the beat in my head is because you've got 30 seconds to get your point out before you've got to go to somebody else. It's like you listen to Joe Rogan and Joe Rogan, like this is how Joe, well, I mean, this is kind of how Joe Rogan does an interview. Yeah. And what do you think about that? You know, and it's much slower yeah. and it's much more deliberate. What's the Dan's history? The Dan. Yeah. Dan hardcore oh history. My gosh. Yeah. She Works talks, of art. I have to put it at two X. <laughs> I, I mean, the guy is so slow. It's, but it's, those are works of art. The, oh, they are. The Genghis Khan, the Genghis Khan one. I just, I just recommended that. I mean, just listen to it. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. But, yeah, that's the beauty of podcasts is that you can engage your mind while you're doing other things. Exactly. And you get to, like, you just don't, like, we could sit here for 30 minutes or in two hours and we can have, as long as the conversation flows and the information is interesting, it's, it's, it's so great to have this platform. I mean, it's, it's, exa- it's what I love and it's exactly what uh, I think the world needs yeah. right now, which is that, I agree. that conversation that has complexity to it. Well, I know we're going to talk about social media, but. You know, text, you lose the passion, you lose, you, you know, I'm sarcastic as hell, so people might take that as anger or mean. Right. You know, and so, and whereas when you're actually having a conversation, people can hear in your voice whether you're stressed, upset, mm-hmm. sarcastic, joking, whatever it is. And you can't, you know, you can't sit, you know, an LOL could mean a lot of things. It could mean I'm talking down to you. Right. <laughs> or it could mean that it was funny or I'm sarcastic or, you know. It's and so voice is just incredibly powerful. Well, you're you're really at the mercy of the other person's perceptions too. Yeah. Like I, by nature, am a sensitive person, and so I'll a lot of times take a comment as an attack. Wait a second, you're a podcaster and a libertarian, and you're sensitive. Yeah, how does this work? I, I joke today that uh, I'm going to go <laughs> vegan keto too, and CrossFit. Maybe society will accept. Yeah. It. Um, no, so like online, a lot of times I will take stuff that I just like they didn't intend it to be a slam, but like right. if I'm in a particularly insecure mood that day, I will take it a certain way, and I think that happens all the time online. I, I don't think yeah. I'm I'm unique in that way. I think it just is. Uh, it, it's the way that the platform works, the way that the written word, that back and forth, where it's just. I mean, Doug. There's a lot of conversation around social media with um, the psychology of social media yeah. and the psychology of Facebook and Twitter. And can you kind of explain what that conversation is about right now? You know, I, I just wrote about it uh, recently. I just read a book that was really fascinating. It was on public shaming. Mm. And, and it, was, it was sincerely just a great read. I was down at a conference and somebody recommended it to me. And I, I, I'm, I actually listen to podcasts a lot more than I read now. But this this is a book that I picked up and I I, I just couldn't put it back down and and um, part of part of the problem that we have right now is uh, especially with social shaming so whether whether it's social justice or whether it's right now you know everything is sexual harassment uh, you know and and that's that's exploding online 
Um, the problem is, is that we're reaching a, a, an age where everybody's dark secrets are, are getting revealed mm -hmm. and we're dark people. We're, we all have, I've said things to my daughter that I'm ashamed that I've said to her in, in anger or whatever. If there was a microphone on or if she posted that to Facebook, uh, I would probably go viral. Well, Mel Gibson was a great example yeah, of that. Ab yeah, absolutely. And, and so the, the, problem, the problem that I see right now is that we have these stampedes online and we have these stampedes and there's not a, there's not a happy ending to it. These people in the, in the book, the public shaming book, these people literally lose their livelihoods. They don't get hired again because every recruiter is Googling their name. Um, one lady even, you know, she couldn't even get a date again. Jeannie Ann Sacco, you, yeah. you're talking about So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. Yes. Which yeah, is by, a book yeah. we talked about a little bit last week, which, yeah, I mean, she's the woman who flew to South Africa, made the joke about AIDS, got off the plane, and her life has never been the same. Yeah, exactly. And and, and the problem is, is that, uh, I mean, I'll fully admit it here. I Of course I've made jokes about AIDS. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In the comfort of friends, in a safe area, and not with the intent to be mean or right. or, or anything else. You know, and that's that's the problem is, is that these things take fire and the stampede goes, and then the record is there forever. Yeah. And so we're as a people, I really feel like we're going to have to learn that there isn't good people and bad people in the world. There's people at all levels in between. And you can be a, a bad person and go to jail and redeem yourself and feel sorry and someday become a really great person. Right. You know, and you can be a great person that made a mistake one day and did something absolutely terrible or said something absolutely terrible. And as a people we need to stop pointing our fingers at those people and, and, and wanting to shame them forever when, you know, after we're done shaving, shaming, we, we go back and, you know, somebody's you know, hitting their kid or, or, you know, doing something just as terrible or, or worse. And, right. And so the, the psychology of social media is really uh, starting to scare me. I mean, we've been friends online for, what, about a year now or something like that? Oh, or? and for probably almost 10. Oh, I mean, really? You're, you're somebody okay. that I was watching your work as a marketer when I was at the Libertarian Party of Indiana 10 okay. years ago. So you know that I'm absolutely transparent. You right. Know, I put yeah. it out there. But I'll tell you, the last few years, I've cut back. You don't mm -hmm. see a lot of political arguments from me online. You don't see a lot. And, the, and the, the reason why is not because I don't want to change people's minds and open them up to new ideas or, or even debate them, which I love doing. It, it's because of this aspect of, my livelihood is at stake. Yeah. That literally I know of at least one client that, the, uh, you know, I worked with him with three different companies. We got in an argument about the second amendment and I never heard from him again. Mm. You know, and we say hi and hello and, you know, online, but he's not, he's not calling my business anymore. So, wow. Right. You yeah. Know, I mean, we, that's a terrible, terrible world we're living in where we can't respect each other's differences. Yeah. Go ahead. Especially when a lot of the stuff, you know, comments that people made or actions they took during like 18 to 22 and then 15 years later it gets brought back up and it haunts them. Right. And it's like, wait a second. A, when you're 22, you're not even the same person once you turn 30. Yeah. Yeah. When I look at myself when I was 21, 22, it, I'm almost unrecognizable. Exactly. And yeah. so to still try and use something that happened that long ago to destroy somebody – Right. It's just unbelievable. And it does. It's, it, I mean, the, you know, a Google result is a Google result. It, mm -hmm. It's as fresh as the day that it mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, first took place. So it's a, 
and and so you know I'm modifying my behavior online, and I think a lot of people should probably you know do the same thing. You look at somebody like Dakota from the Boss Hog of Liberty, who's 21. Who you go back on his Facebook page to when he was 12. You know, you ha- and then he's going to in 10 years be a completely different. There's three versions of himself online, yeah. and the things that you're trying to work out as and like myself, I'm a verbal processor. So like I like to talk and I like to talk with friends and messengers an easy way to do it. And you know, it's already happened once. It happened a month ago. Somebody who's been in a group chat that I considered a friend that you're making jokes to try and make your friends laugh takes the the screenshots, put it out of context, and then puts it in yeah. in, a, in a Facebook group to, to make you look bad. Context and intent are the two things that are totally missing from Completely. these. Completely. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I just saw, you know, today, I can't stand the guy, but, you know, Al Franken is on the hot seat today. Yeah. Right? And it's, and it's because he... There's a photo of him grabbing a girl's boobs. Grabbing you know? is a strong word. Yeah. Like, here's, yeah. here's yeah. the thing. Like, here... Yeah. It's so Jamie Kilstein. I can't. I've recommended this podcast in every one of mine since I've heard it. Jamie Kilstein was the guy who was a progressive, male feminist, liberal, liberal podcast host yeah. who went on, who did Citizen Radio, who went on Joe Rogan's podcast and talked about how a Jezebel article ruined his entire life and career, and you know most of it was false. And yes. But he talks about what a dirtbag he was to wake up every day and go on Twitter looking with the mob to destroy the next person. Well, and that's and that's my point. Like yeah. Al, Fra- Al Franken, as much as I can't stand him, he was on a comedy tour with other comedians making jokes. Yeah, so he wasn't in the senator's office. You know, right. now now he he he's made his bed and needs to lie in it. He's yeah. yelling just like everybody else that nobody that has bad behavior deserves to be a senator. Okay, well, here you go. You're doing it to everybody else. Now you got to eat your own dog food, you know? Right. But but it's still taken out of context, and, and the intent was totally different. Yeah, so Leanne Tweeden, who is on McIntyre in the Morning, a radio show, and former FHM Maxim model, um, very pretty woman. She was a sports reporter at the time on a USO tour with Al Franken, and... They were doing a skit, and he wrote a part in the skit where he kissed her. And, you know, backstage, he, you know, basically forced a kiss on her when she kept saying, no, I don't want to kiss you. Held held the back of her head and, and forced a kiss on her. That absolutely is yeah. out of bounds and totally appropriate. Wrong. Totally wrong. Uh, her boyfriend, now husband, was on the tour with them. He was in, in the military. Uh, then there there was a photo that she has that she posted on this article where it, appears he's grabbing her breast her, right. her breastular area and uh breastplate but she's wearing she's wearing a protective vest and like yeah. there's a shadow behind there is. the hand yeah. like it, it's very clear that like he does not like he's oh it's he, it's absolutely clear but you can't tell if he's touching her or not even if he's not touching her the objectivity of it, right? The, the right. Treating a woman like an object Absolutely. is clear in it. And, Absolutely. And so, it, and that's where I say, like, Al, hey, you know what? You're the one screaming the loudest about this stuff. About the Roy Moore and, stuff, calling and, on a, uh, yeah. And, and Roy Moore, I think, is a little bit different and intense and everything else. Insane, but, yeah, there's yeah. no moral equivalency between the two. Yeah, no, yeah. not at all. But, but if you're going to say it's black and white, well, you're, you're, right. on, you're, on, you're on the black side of this one, you know? So I, my problem with the Frank, like, for, I don't think Roy Moore or Al Franken should be in the Senate because yeah. of politics. But <laughs> there, there isn't, you know, what Roy Moore did... 
was uh, reprehensible. Like, there's just no defending it. And as I said in the last episode, like, everybody has this flat thinking online, and there's no complexity to it. So, like, when Al Franken came up today, it's like, all right, stop. Put your biases aside. Yes, you don't like him. Yeah. And let's look at this from a rational point of view. What he did was wrong. Uh, should he be fired over it? Well, I mean, to get rid of a Democratic senator, I'll do anything to fire him, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, but Because of politics. But at the end of the day, like, it's not the same. The right is tweeting it or t- treating it as if he's the left's Roy Moore, yeah. and it's not the, it's totally not the same. I, and people, it's, just, it's just like red meat, and people have completely left their critical thinking yes. at the door online in the, last, in the Trump era. And it's now just left or right. It's total that, well, that's it. black pick, and white pick thinking. Pick a side, right? Right. The, the thing is you can say both are wrong. Right. That's the thing that's interesting to me is like nobody's uh, – like I even commented to you because we went back and forth on it. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, look, I, don't, I really don't give a crap if Roy Moore gets kicked out or doesn't get kicked out or whatever. I think, uh, yeah, you're a sicko if you were dating 14-year-olds. I don't care if it was 40 years ago. Uh, it's really kind of weird. Yeah. You know? Um, but I also am absolutely just as scared of a, a media outlet sitting on a story, you know, or, or, or I mean, the, the timing of it is just perfect. And they knew it was perfect. They knew, you know, and that's, so that's scary to me too, is allegations, you know, I mean, uh, binders of women with Mitt Romney, right? I Look, I, I don't think Mitt Romney... I don't even know if you know he ever took his second set of Mormon underwear off to think about a woman. He, he probably was. Right? He's probably one of the most honorable men to ever run for Exa- the office. Exactly, and so and so, but but they did a perfectly timed allegation mm-hmm. which embarrassed him, and and I'm just getting tired of that. That's that's my thing is so so that's where I say both sides can be wrong. Is I'm absolutely if this guy's a, a nasty like that, good shoot him, put him in jail. I don't I don't I don't care. But at the same time. We also have to be careful of every, like the setup is just, seems to be every single elected official. The setup, whether they're conservative or libertarian, is, okay, 30 days before the election, we're going to have the story run that they're a sexist, yeah. you know, or, or they've harassed people or whatever. And I'm growing weary of it, and I think that's what's happening is, People are beyond me and growing, and they're to a point where they're just saying, oh, well, this is a setup. It's all fake. It's not like any of this yeah. is new. I mean, you have Bob Packwood in 92 eventually getting kicked out in 95, yeah. which Bob Packwood, you're, you're old enough to remember yeah. Bob Packwood. I was a youngin. I was in third grade when it came out, but I was politically aware enough to like remember how big of a deal it was that yeah. the senator got accused, Oregon senator, Republican, got accused of by 10 women. I think he was a Republican. And then, you know, Bill Clinton was when Bill Clinton was like Bob Packwood was a big deal because it was like it just was so morally incomprehensible to the greatest generation that somebody well, would act like that. Not only that, but they were, you know, there was a, a, a strong Christian right at the time, which right. was which was pushing their moral superiority. Mm-hmm. And so you In have the light of Clinton. They, yeah, they were they were higher on the ladder. They had a longer distance to fall. Yeah. You know, and I. You know, with Clinton, I, I thought I thought I thought the Clinton Lewinsky thing was probably the biggest mistake that the Republicans have literally made in politics because they 
it was like a you know a an alligator held it was a pandora's to a, box yeah, they they and and they knew it was personal and they didn't care they they lost elections afterwards they didn't care it was all about being vindictive was the guy a creepo yes he absolutely was but there was no reason to publicly sh- again we're back to the shaming publicly shame and embarrass him you know for something that uh you know, if if it was ongoing behavior, do an investigation, you know, kick him out of office, you know, uh, lock him up, do whatever. But in this case, it was so publicly vindictive. That's all. It was just meant to shame. Well, and now the left's hypocrisy after all those years. I mean, you uh, Chelsea Handler tweeted out something along the lines of, you know, uh, wouldn't it be nice if people would believe an accuser? And Juanita Broderick tweeted back, "Yes, it would be." Oh, like, there's she somebody did a who, beautiful tweet. It yeah, was amazing. There, there's somebody who's very credible yeah. and that the left never took seriously, and now it's it's it is it's 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 a scary time because everybody is one tweet away from every single person that has done something. Mean, we're kind of in a panopticon. Like if I you know d- what a panopticon is, it's when it was this it was this uh, puritanical American jail. I think in Pennsylvania, where basically it was a circle, and inside on the outside of the circle, you had like these little windows where it was like a two way mirror, and the prisoners never knew if they were being watched or not. But Mm. the the idea that they were constantly being watched made most of the people in there insane, and it was ruled uh, uh, unjust and, and. cruel and unusual and so it was shut down but like we're really in a panopticon our society's become a digital panopticon no i i agree it's very scary i had a you know my business partner was female jen lisak you know she Mm -hmm. she owns sapphire strategy now and uh our our joke at the office was that one day she would own the business from the sexual harassment you know lawsuit and uh there was nobody that i had greater love and respect for than jen but when the jokes flew, the jokes flew. Right. And were they off color? Yes, they were off color. But but Jen, in her heart, knew that you know if if someone would have come in here again with intent or contextually, uh, you know, put her down because she was a woman, I would have been the first person to punch that person in the face because she was she was she was someone that I looked up to, not right. looked over at, looked up to. And that's the thing is you can you can have these. You know, we can have bad behavior and still be good people. Yeah. And what's interesting is that Vox released an article a couple of days ago that they wanted to relook Bill Clinton's accusations. Mm-hmm. You know, the sexual harassment ones, the sexual assault ones, Monica Lewinsky, that they're saying, well, maybe we should relook these. And it's like, now wait a second. You're waiting until all this is going on, and then you're going to sneak in this article of, oh, maybe Bill Clinton's a bad guy. We've known he's been a bad guy yeah. for a long yeah. time. And a year ago, during the election, when Hillary Clinton was running, you guys didn't want anything to do with any stores like well, that. That's, and, that's, well, and that's, I think, where, where the right does have an have a edge. Is, you know, if you're, if you're going to sit here and, and criticize every single Republican for being sexist and you know, down on women and everything else, but then you know, Hollywood is raping women, you know, right. and... Uh, well, guess what? Yeah, we're going to make a big deal out of it. I don't blame the right for doing that. It's it's a but to your point, you know, it's look, there's bad behavior everywhere, but you really have to take a look at engage these people on a personal level and see whether 
you know, is this something that they truly are? Weinstein is a monster, right? Uh, we, yeah, no doubt. We know that. Right. You know, and he deserves to be in jail. But does, you know, uh, you know, I don't even know another example, you know, to Al Franken. You know, does is Al Franken a monster or or was the context that he was making a joke at the time and on right. tour and everything else? We we need to be reasonable people because we're all we all fall short. Yeah, and that's why I look at our own Facebook page, the We Are Libertarians main Facebook page, and my personal Facebook page, which you can find all of at wearelibertarians.com. Like <laughs> it, it, I just see it's liber- just black and white, right? <laughs> I just see libertarians where libertarians we're supposed to like be the deeper thinkers. We're supposed to get, like have more compassion. We're supposed right. to to not buy into uh, bipolar thinking where it's one or the other. And there's just so many libertarians that are not using the brains that God gave them to, to, to really think about this stuff critically. And, and I think there's also a strain of libertarians that want to win at any costs. And they're more in the Republican party because libertarian party people don't win, (laughs) but and we really talked about it a lot in depth last episode. You, there's two types of ways to think about this stuff. I don't care if uh, it's like the, some writer basically said, you know, during the during the Lewinsky stuff, I don't care what Bill Bill did with Lewinsky. I'll blow him as long as he doesn't implement yeah. abortion. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter what the politicians do. It doesn't matter what their moral character is as long as they vote the right way. Right. Versus the, it's the character greater, matters it's the greater in society, good, right? Right. Yeah. And yeah. so I have always taken the view that character matters, and that I'm involved in politics because I want to build a better, more moral, more fair society. And you can only do that if you're a principled person. Yeah. And yes, you're going to fall short. Nobody's perfect. I mean, I've outlined my flaws on this show plenty of times. Uh, you. But it, there's no reason to give give up your soul for Roy Moore. Like, well, and, and, I, and I, I, so I don't understand it. But I, I think I, reasonable people think that way. But I, I'll go back to I. I love calling it a stampede because that's what it is, right? Is when everybody's running in a certain direction, screaming. Um, you don't stop to ask for the facts and the context and the mm-hmm. intent. You start running and screaming too. Yeah, and that's what happens online right now, and that's what happens with voters right now. I, if if voters were. Uh, reasonably intellectual yeah <laughs> we would have good leaders i i got in an argument with uh jeb banner he's an amazing guy really a great guy and he's on the left and he knows that i i fall you know i don't know where i am but right in some ways and and libertarian and others and i and i you know he was he was really really just you know just ashamed of you know donald trump as a president mm-hmm. you know and and my point was he's a he's a perfect reflection of what America looks like right now. Yeah. I, look at a Donald Trump tweet, which I, I laugh at most of them, but then look at the responses of, of, of higher up reasonable leaders in this country and their behavior is just as juvenile mm-hmm. in response. And I go, I, I don't see a difference. I, nobody's taking the higher road. We've somehow fooled ourselves to think that like, because we have cars and the internet that we aren't the same people who uh, I'm reading a book by David Hackett Fisher about Paul Revere, a great book called Paul Revere's Ride, and they talked about Boston in the seven, early 1700s. And you know, as you entered Boston's gates, the first thing you saw into this puritanical hamlet was the stocks and a noose 
and bones and a rusted and a rusted cage with the bones of a slave in it. Like we we seem to like think that somehow we're not the same human beings, the same animals deep down that enjoyed going to watch a hanging in 1850. Yeah. You know, there we're not that much more evolved, guys. Like there's well, we, we we the better angels of our nature by uh Pinkett uh, talking about the decline in violence and why it's happening. That's all still well and good, but like we still are the same complex animals of hierarchy. And I think part of what what happens, like you look at Kevin Spacey, everybody looked at the Kevin Spacey story and went, "That's wrong." Yeah. And the Kevin Spacey story is the exact same as the Roy Moore story. Yeah. But because the element of politics was involved in it, a, politi- a politicization happened where half the aisle went, well, we're not going to defend him, but hold on a minute there. I'm going to defend him. And the other half, I'm not going to read the ar-. Like, neither yeah. side seemed to read the article. And if you read the article, it's pretty clear, like, this is gross and as bad as Kevin Spacey, yeah. if you're thinking in, of, in moral terms. But if you're looking at it in po- political terms, well, then you're David Horowitz, where I don't care if he raped kids, like he's not going to vote for abortion. Yeah. So who cares what the moral of the person is, which is so bizarre for the a bizarre argument for the right to make based on the last 30 years. Yeah. yeah and during the last during the 2016 election, I engaged specifically three different evangelical Christians who were planning on voting for Trump. I talked my dad out of voting for Trump twice because <laughs> yeah. he was for, he was not wanting to, but was going to just out of a vote against Hillary. And when I explained and to the other to the other two as well, but it didn't work. Is when you walk into that ballot box, you are not there is not an option of not Hillary. Mm-hmm. When you press that button, it is I support Donald Trump. Right, and with that comes everything with Trump. Yeah. Ah. I disagree. <laughs> All right. And so, I was, and I would also tell him that care, you know, a vote for Donald Trump says that we don't care about character; we care about politics. Right. No, I, 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 I disagree, and I, I, and respectfully, you know, but, but, but there is the lesser evil, and and this is this is this is absolutely, you know, I got to speak at the Libertarian uh, Party recently, and the, this is a problem that I see with Libertarians, and and honestly, I'm just being honest. Is it's it, and I'm not saying it's a flaw. It's a difference in my thinking and and a libertarians is that libertarians are generous, genuinely righteous. I think good, like you said, they they evaluate things lo- logically and everything else. And and I, when when the country is sliding into mayhem and death and destruction. I'm I'm just not going to help accelerate it. If, if I can slow it down, still heading in the wrong direction, I'm going to try to slow it down, even if it's still heading in the wrong direction. And that's my personal, you know, my personal thing. So I did vote for Donald Trump, not wanting Donald Trump as president, but not wanting the acceleration that I was seeing that was going to come with Hillary Clinton. And what was the value choice that you made? So I voted for Gary Johnson. My dad wouldn't support Gary Johnson because of abortion, but he voted for um, the Constitution care candidate, uh, Daryl Castle, I believe. Yeah, Daryl Castle. Um, and so he, he, one of the things that, you know, as we talked about it, is that you know, the lesser of two evils is still evil. Yes. And a vote communicates something. So as off-party, minor-party 
candidates gain votes, that communicates to the major parties, those choices are not acceptable. And so even if we knew Gary Johnson was not going to win the election, those votes communicated to the Republican and Democratic parties, your candidates are unacceptable. And so I even supported that, you know, as long as we continue to vote for the lesser of two evils, we're only going to have two evil choices. Yeah. Right. I, and I, and I, but I look at it and I go, those are the only choices we yeah. had. Right. You know, I mean, that's, that's, I don't disagree with you. And I, and I, and the thing is, I totally respect that. Mm-hmm. I absolutely respect that. I just have a different take on it. So I'm trying to look up who the libertarian, because there is a, a libertarian candidate in the Alabama race, and I would be remiss as a yeah. reporter on, on the libertarian movement if I didn't mention Ron Bishop, who is a write-in candidate. Uh, he's an IT professional who lives in Irondale. Uh, he declared himself as a write-in on September 30th. And uh, he says, the two choices that we have now don't conform to what I think America needs to be. I'm hoping to give voters a third option. Bishop is 50, making his second run for office, running as a county commissioner. And uh, the way it's kind of going right now, everybody's getting out and voting. They're not voting for the establishment. They're voting for your typical politicians. And these guys are definitely politicians. So. So Ron Bishop, in, and there's a meme floating around with this guy, and I, I don't like, I didn't post the meme because I don't like the meme because it's like under the sexual assault, like it's like a chart mm. of the three, and under sexual assault for Doug Jones, the Democrat, they put a question mark, and I just felt like that was unfair, and so like even memes that I feel are unfair I won't share, mm. but yeah, I think it is, it, it, and that's like if you've heard taxation is theft, if you go to wearelibertarians.com and you look up the path to libertarianism, that is something that I put together several years ago, which I think is just a very quick guide to the basic foundational principles of what libertarians believe, these three big ideas uh, that, you know, with some videos and text that kind of walk you through the basics in a different way that you're not going to hear in other places because it, it talks about moral evaluations as opposed to I'm against government. Yeah. And I think in so many ways, the libertarian movement have gotten so obsessed with the government being the ills, the root of all evil, that they've forgotten the other wing of the airplane, which is you have to be a good person to live in a libertarian society. Like, yeah, there's going to be bad actors, but we have to value giving. We have to value charity. We have to value all these different good qualities uh, you know, so we can sit here and say on our moral high horse, like government steals, but you should talk about the positive principles as, as, instead of just taxation as theft. Like it really comes down to what are your personal values? Like I, I would never, Doug has a very nice iPhone case. I would never steal his iPhone case because I like it. Right. It's not fair for me to ask George to steal Doug's well, iPhone case. It's not right for the, all the people in this building to vote on me taking Doug's iPhone case. Yeah. So like, if it's not right on an interpersonal basis, then it's not right on a societal basis. That doesn't reflect my personal values. And that's, that's why I support moving, liber- moving society in a libertarian direction. So I certainly see your point of view, Doug, where yeah. you go, listen, we've got to, we, we can't have Hillary Clinton. And in some ways, you're absolutely right. Like, if you had Hillary Clinton in office during the Texas shooting, she would have used that moment to further move this country towards confiscation of guns and eroding the Second Amendment. But I think George's point 
is also valid in that Absolutely. you that you can't build a libertarian society and move us towards a libertarian society without some base level of morals. Yeah. And that's what I think society is grappling with right now. I do think that there are people who just want to use it for political purposes because it feels good. It feels good when you open up your Twitter and you've got 72 likes on a tweet that's against a politician and it's like cheap heat. Like, you know, it's like there's a wrestling concept called cheap heat where basically you walk out. It's not because you made a great slam. It's not because you were good on mic work. It's it's that you walked out and you're like, how great is New York City? Ah! Yeah. Like that's cheap heat. Yeah. You know, and there's so many people who just like politics is easy, cheap heat to get likes. And every time you get those likes, it's that serotonin hit in your brain and it gets addicting. And I'll tell you, like, I'm really trying hard to put my phone down and not get on social media and unfollow my posts and Same here. then go back and thoughtfully respond to things. I see, and, I see a shooting and I wait three days. Yeah. Like, like I don't, I just go away. Because it's, I don't want to be part of that stampede. It's like know? I didn't even post. I think Wall posted about Al Franken. Yeah. But I didn't personally post because it's just like, you know what? After the Roy Moore thing, I had so many people. Like, I lost respect for so many friends. I unfriended like half yeah. a dozen people. Like, well, I just thanks, don't want to do thanks it. Thanks for not unfriending Yeah, me. I didn't unfriend you. I, don't, <laughs> I, you know, I know you're shitposting. Like, I know already that Doug Carr is well, shitposting. You, you actually brought up a good good point that I want to kind of parallel to you on that. And that's that I was, I was just, I was on another podcast and I was just talking about this because the same thing happens with um, business versus government. Right. And that's that we sit there and we say, you know, why is government in charge of healthcare? Why uh, healthcare sucks. This is ridiculous. This is unconstitutional, everything else. But, but at the same time, you know, uh, employers are cutting employee you know, hours down to 28 so that they can get by with not giving them benefits. They've cut the, you know, we used to have, uh, you know, when I, I worked at the shipyards, when I got out of the Navy, you know, uh, whoa, wow, that was a long time ago. Um, but, but we had a hospital in the shipyards. Like I could bring my family during work hours, you know, and go get my family treated for free in there, you know, and that was part of the, that was just part of the benefit, you know, of working at the shipyards. And I, and I look at, you know, I, I think that we've done the same thing on the corporate side of it, that we sit there and we scream and we yell about government wanting to take more taxes. But at the same time, we're not willing to sacrifice, you know, some of our profit, you know, to take care of our children, you know, or to take care of the families that are working there. Right. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a very similar thing that, okay, if in a libertarian society, if you truly want government to stay out of all of this stuff, that that means that you absolutely have to step up, right? You know, and and people just um, people reject that wholeheartedly. You know, that's no, it's personal responsibility. No, I, for I mean, the other guy, yeah, yeah, for the <laughs> other guy. You know, and so I, I I love that you said that because I I very much feel the same way that I have a responsibility as a business owner to be taking care of the people around me, a responsibility, not, not, you know, governed by law or anything like that, but just a, a, a human responsibility to take care of the people around me and make it a better place. Right. Yeah. And so my five-year-old goes to a private school that it's, it's entrance is based on, you know, a variety of different factors. Race is one of them, but income level is another. And they tier their tuition accordingly. And so, in effect, those that make more subsidize the tuition for those that don't. 
And I was explaining that, and so we pay about $10,000 a year for him to go to this school. And so I was explaining this to a work colleague today, and he made a joke about socialism. I said, but here's the, I go, but here's the thing, and he outranks me too, and, <laughs> but that was fine because I was willing to engage him on this. I said, here's the thing. We're choosing it. Exactly. It's not coerced. Exactly. Socialism is if somebody made me do it. Right. But we like the school. We like the environment he's in. We like that exposure to people of lower income levels. Um, you know, where we live is mostly white. And so that's good for him to have that exposure to people that are different, that look different than him, talk different than him. And so we're happy to pay that extra money and support them so Absolutely. that they get a good education. Yep. Yeah. And that, in this Paul Revere's book, I mean, it goes back to our founding too. These are basic fundamental principles of our nation's founding. And they talk about how uh, Paul Revere in this town, he was one of the only mechanics, quote unquote, working men who was allowed in these upper crust, higher society, you know, Does that mean groups. that he was revered? He was revered, yeah. <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, we and I want to read this passage because I think it's it's speaks to what we're talking about. We misunderstand Paul Revere's revolutionary thinking if we identify it with our modern ideas of individual freedom and tolerance that later spread through the world. Bostonians had a very different attitude in 1775. Sam Adams often spoke of what he called the public liberty or the liberty of America or sometimes the liberty of Boston. Their idea of liberty both a corporate and an individual possession. It had a double meaning in New England akin to the Puritan idea of a special and general calling in Cotton Mather's two oars, basically, you know, you can't, uh, oars of a boat. It referred not only to the autonomy of each person's rights, but also the integrity of the group, mm. and especially to the responsibility of a people to regulate their own affairs. We remember the individual rights and forget the collective responsibilities. We tend to interpret Thomas Jefferson's ambiguous reference to the pursuit of happiness as an individual quest, but in 1774, Paul Revere's town meeting spoke of social happiness as its goal. So to achieve equality, to achieve liberty, you have to have a community mindset. And it is. It's not socialism. And, and libertarians have this knee-jerk reaction against anything that if I read that, I'm sure there's somebody, oh, Spangle's going to become a leftist, or I bet he's just well, a left but libertarian. But it's selfless. It's not right. a, it's not, it, it's saying that I'm not going to, I'm not going to equate and measure other people against myself. I'm just going to give back. Right. A period. And, and I think that's where, you know, socialism is the mm -hmm. measurement, right? It's, you have someone totalitarian, you know, you have something, uh, a system over you telling you what's fair. This isn't that. This is saying, you know what, I'm going to give back. If I'm going to give back 50% of my salary on a uh, on an annual basis to charity, I can do that. If I want to give 10%, I can do that. But it's it's selfless, you know, for the better of, of, of society. Well, and that's one thing that angers me about Marxism and communism is that, you know, kind of one of their keynote phrases is from each according to their ability to each according to their need, which they stole from the book of Acts and Scripture but they repurposed it to mean forceful. Right. Where in Acts, it was voluntary. Oh, I saw that Chris had a need. I had extra, you know, extra food that year, so yeah. I gave some to Chris. It was totally voluntary, and that's that's the difference that seems to get lost on it's, a lot it's, of people. It's funny too when you go back on all the verbiage, right? You know, I mean, back then a barn raising, right? A barn <laughs> raising literally was, right? Everybody going, oh, 
John over here, his family needs our help to raise the barn. Nobody got paid. Nobody got, right. <laughs> you know, you all went over there and helped. Because at some point you're going to need a barn raise. Yeah. The other one that I always tell people about is marketing. You know, why do they call it marketing? You know, well, because it started in the market. <laughs> you know, it was it was people after Sunday, you know, after taking their wagon and going an hour to church, you know, bringing their stuff there and trading products, services, you know, for each other, talking about what they could do for the other person and everything else. And that's the way it started. And it was, government wasn't over top of that or anything and taxing every single transaction and all of that. It just happened. Yeah. And in this Paul Revere book, I mean, it is amazing how much of a freer society and a much more peaceful society they had. And you see in the difference between a Paul, and obviously there's 15,000 people in Boston in this little hamlet and i've been there i mean it's amazing how small boston in the north end is uh but you had a very peaceful society and then it now but but you still had fights you still had uh, all the things that come with human beings being involved and we're never going to get rid of that we're never going to progress to the point where we erase all violence where we erase all molestation where we erase yeah. at war totally it's always going to exist because we're a fallen species right. but you you do have a responsibility and that's so i think it ties back into kind of what all this ties back into why you guys are here you know good marketing community service uh not <laughs> not leading with uh basically libertarians being assholes and uh, we've talked a little bit about Arvin Vara, who is the vice chair of the National Libertarian Party. And he made it his mission, as he does on every memorial on Veterans Day, to lead the charge about uh, just basically being anti-military, anti-soldier. And listen, it goes back to my personal beliefs are that I'm a non-interventionist and I am anti-war. And I don't believe in war because I don't believe that violence solves the problems. I think it creates more problems. I think if anybody disagrees with that, let's look at the Middle East and ISIS and the rise of the, the fallout of our, our intervention in the Middle East through Iraq and Afghanistan. Obviously, uh, George knows that better because he's actually been to Afghanistan, which we'll talk about. But, you know, when you're trying to message and win people over, Doug is somebody who is libertarian curious and has libertarian leanings. <laughs> I really like that. Uh, and George is somebody who is, are you a Libertarian Party member? Or you? Uh, I donate to the state and county party. I've not, I don't have, never received a card. I don't know if I was supposed to, um, <laughs> but I've never donated to the national party. Okay, why have you not donated to the national party? <laughs> Most, so I donated to Gary Johnson's actual campaign, and then as I was kind of starting to get more involved into the Libertarian movement, it just so happened to be that the people that I was linking up with were part of the state party, and I had limited funds that I was willing to donate, and so it just kind of started there because I think most of the work needs done locally rather than nationally. Right. So he, like Arvin, after, and, and the bonus content this week is a discussion of the Indiana Libertarian Party passing a resolution saying Arvin Vora needs to resign because he doesn't represent us. And so you've got two people who served in the military here, uh, and both of them contacted me after the Arvin stuff and said, hey, you know, if you ever want somebody on to talk about what it's really like to be in the military, I'd love yeah. to have you on. And Arvin continues yesterday at 11 a.m. 
uh, military recruiting is human trafficking. You know, when, when, uh, let me ask this. All right, let, let's start with where you guys served, sure. and then we'll get into your reactions to the comments. So let's start with, uh, let's go age before beauty. Doug, Doug served first. Did Doug, <laughs> what branch of the military when did you serve? I, I was in the United States Navy. My dad was also in the in the Navy, so there was some uh, there was definitely some family you know traits there and respect um, there. But I joined in. Uh, I went to to high school and was a terrible student. Uh, didn't apply myself. Um, smoking pot, you know, way too, <gasps> yeah, way too much and. And, um, and while all of my, I went to a, a Catholic school while all of my friends were, you know, prepping for college, I knew that my parents did not have that money. I, I didn't know that I could just go get student loans. Honestly, I mm-hmm. was totally ignorant of that. And, uh, and, and I, and I knew I was kind of wayward. I didn't, I didn't have confidence in myself. I was really abusing myself, you know, as a person, I, I wasn't happy with, with who I was. And so the, uh, the opportunity came up to to join the navy i think in 11th grade first um so i went to maps which is basically uh entrance point for the for the military and um and i got turned down because i had a broken knee at the time and so they they did exploratory surgery on my knee over the next year and and then i wound up going in in 1986 and um i went to nuclear power school uh in orlando florida um got got uh booted out to the still kept getting into trouble still kept drinking and everything. you <laughs> yeah and, uh, and got got booted out to the to the fleet um uh, got married and then went to uh, norfolk virginia i was on a destroyer in norfolk virginia for uh about a year and then um went to gator navy which is basically uh, amphibious assault vehicles and, and everything uh in little creek virginia and then uh, served in desert storm desert shield over there for 11 months and um, and I did a number of other missions. We did uh, one of the biggest ones that we did was we did a, a humanitarian mission to Hurricane Hugo, hmm. and and that's the one that I always uh, that's the one that I'm always surprised that I had another fr- uh, friend of mine that you know kind of was kind of a military hater, you know, and and I told him I said you know the the biggest mission that I went on bef- besides Desert Storm Desert Shield was a humanitarian mission, and he was like, military doesn't do humanitarian missions, and I was like, okay, well. Here's the medal, and then, you know, and 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 then go, seriously for anybody listening, you know, go out to Wikipedia and look up humanitarian, uh, the humanitarian medal, you know, uh, for the for the United States, and you'll see that literally multiple times every single year, and and in that year it was Hurricane Hugo had destroyed Puerto Rico, literally, literally leveled it, and was heading towards Norfolk, and I packed up my sea bag. And left my family now, in is Norfolk. That, uh, is that code? Or? Yeah. <laughs> but left my family in Norfolk to jump on a ship to bring, you know, uh, you know, water, you know, water general, whatever you, water cleansers, whatever you want to call them, you know, down, down to uh, Hurricane Hugo. We actually went through Hurricane Hugo. Had a huge crack in the ship as we were going through. Uh, was wondering whether we were going to actually make it or not. You know, and then and then went down there and spent I, I don't know it was a few weeks at least held, helping you know set up equipment and everything down there and it was um, you know that was one mission there was another mission where we um, we served with uh, I don't know who they were it was it was one of the Bahamas or something but um, it was 
I, 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 uh, this is how ignorant I am, but it was French speaking black Haitians. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was Creole. Haitian. Yeah. Was it? <laughs> okay. So that's how ignorant I am. Um, but you know, that was a training mission that we went on down there. I, it was always, we were always either, you know, obviously training, you know, but, but it was always doing, you know, that every single day of my time in the military was training people below me how to be men people above me training me how to be a man, mm. you know, and how to take now care of that work out, <laughs> how to take care. It did. Right. I mean, uh, the, the God's honest truth, you know, I, I got out of the Navy cause my, my ex-wife was, uh, by the time I got out of the Navy, this is a, you know, my, my final statement that I tell everybody, my last notice was a red cross message that I was, I was in, uh, Israel and it was, uh, back then it was telegram literally, mm. right. You know, it was a radio message and it said, uh, wife overdosed, uh, at local hospital, um, son with friends. Oh, and wow. so my, my son was, you know, uh, I think he was about a year and a half, two years old at the time. My wife had OD'd, uh, on the couch. And for three days, I think my son was like eating Cheerios out of a box or whatever. Oh my gosh. And, and, uh, and so somebody came, found her and everything else. And so, you know, I flew back stateside and, uh, you know, she went to rehab, but, you know, eventually it led to a divorce and, and I became a single father of my kids, you know, so here I sit at 49 years old, single father to two incredible kids. I mean, my son has a PhD in math, the first PhD in our entire lineage. My, a y'all kid. He's a Young Americans for Liberty he kid. Is. That's yeah. I, met, I actually yep. met him before I yeah, met he you. He was president, I think, of Young Americans for Liberty out in um, out in uh, University of Illinois. Or yeah, University of Illinois. My daughter graduated. I uh, got her degree, so I never got my degree. So I have two kids that have degrees, two kids that have incredible jobs. Um, I'm not, you know, a raging alcoholic. I have a b- successful business down here, you know, in in Indianapolis. I mentor tons of people. I uh, you know, every single year we send um, a huge amount of our money goes to uh, 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 charity in um, Romania to support three safe houses to save women from human trafficking. You know, the, that's what the military did. That's what it built my character and and gave me the confidence, the trade ability, uh, everything else to, to not just, you know, obviously be willing to go to, to war, you know, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, you know, the, when you look back at them, it was easy, but when you were heading to them, it wasn't looking that good. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I tell the story all the time. I, I turned 18 on September 9th, 2001. Yeah. I filed my selective service September 10th, 2001. Wow. Yeah. And then 9-11, then 9-11 happened the next day, yeah. and I was shitting my pants. Yeah. I, was, I was terrified, but I... I uh, I was way too fat for the military. Yeah. And there was no way they were ever going to take me. And when I got my 4F card, I was so happy. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, jo- I, but go I, ahead. But it, yeah, but, well, it was it was it was the it was the rigor and discipline that I needed. And and I, you know, if you say I, like the other thing that a lot of these folks say is, you know, well, it's a welfare program. It's a welfare program. Um, I, I, it's so offensive because I busted my ass. You know, when most of the time that we were on the ship out at sea, it was six on, six off, which is basically six hours on, six hours off. So 12 hours a day, you're working, working, right. you know, not sitting around waiting for a chow. You know, you're literally working. 
and and then all of the the other side of it is all of the ports that we went to you know Rota Spain Israel everything we always went out and we you know we had disciplinary you know requirements when we went out we had you know people telling us what you know what 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 was bad to do in that town you know uh how to treat people you know everything else because we were representing the united states in that city um you know or country and so that's the other side of it that i think people miss is the the original idea behind the u.s navy wasn't to show our just show our might you know our original the original was to sail ships around the world and show what kind of people we were Mm -hmm. and and that's the thing is it's easy to hate people that you don't understand Right. And so having a military presence in in whatever 94 countries I think now or something like that and having ships all over the world what you, what you fail to understand is that I ne- I never I have I've been spit on once in my life for being an American and it was when I was in Paris way after the navy you mm. know but when I was in and the that's Navy, because you're just being yourself. Or? I was in. A, I was actually in a really, really deep Islamic section of town, and I didn't. I didn't realize it. I, I, she asked if I was Canadian, and I said, "No, I'm American." Yeah, wrong answer. Um, but uh, but but you know that those are the other things. Is I, I think it's really important whether it's the uh, the Peace Corps, whether it's uh, religious charities, whether it's the military. It is absolutely essential for us to be all over the world helping people so that they realize what an incredible country we are. If we just retreated and and um, and I and I agree with you totally on the war side and intervention side from a from a war standpoint. Um, but that's that's you know the 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 primary purpose of a defense is a defense, not an offense, mm-hmm. right? And it's our national defense. And part of that defense is absolutely showing our power, but also showing, you know, the the good of what our country can can do to help others. And, you know, you look at Afghanistan and Iraq, how many schools we built and how many people forget this. You know, they don't pay attention to that. But the problem with some of the schools, there's some of the stuff that, that you said in there, like some of the schools, for instance, like if you if you really study the schools in Afghanistan, before you and I go point, but there's several things in there that I want to I yeah. want to counter. But I want to give George the opportunity to kind of introduce himself before we get into this discussion. So George, uh, what's your age range? Like, are you late twenties, early thirties? So between late twenties and early thirties. All right, and so so you're we're around the same age. You when did you join? So I joined a little over 10 years ago when I was still in high school. Um, joined the Guard, have been in the Guard my whole time. Um, went to ROTC while I was at college. So I enlisted first and then went to ROTC while I was in college and then commissioned into the Guard. Mm-hmm. Um, since college, I've worked, spent most of my time working full-time for the National Guard. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I think a lot of people, when they think of the National Guard, they just think of the one week a month, two weeks a year. But it takes a lot of full-time staff to support the people that come in just on the part-time. Yeah. And so I've done a variety of jobs working full-time for the National Guard. Uh, deployed to Afghanistan in 2012. Ish. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's enough people over there at 2012 that I think we'll be all right. <laughs> right okay. But so I deployed to Afghanistan in 2012. And... That was really when my kind of libertarian path 
started. Okay. It kind of started and waned throughout, but that was the first time that I voted third party um, because of a friend that was there. You know, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama were the two choices, and that was the first time I was like, I'm tired of lesser two evil. And a friend told me, Hey, there's this guy named Gary Johnson. He used to be a governor. You should check him out. What was your? I was in the. Hey, loud noise for. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. What was your ideological bent before that? So I was definitely a neocon. Um, Always loved politics throughout high school, throughout college. And I went to a pretty liberal college. So being a conservative, um, wearing my NRA hat around (laughs) on campus, I stuck out like a sore thumb. (laughs) And loved to engage and debate people during class. But it was, I didn't have much depth to it and so you know in 2008 didn't really like john mccain but thought eh, he's not bad voted for him mostly on reputation than understanding him ron paul had kind of started to intrigue me that hey maybe there's something to him but i wasn't all the way there yet most like on you know drug legalization and stuff like that and then so we get to 2012 and it's like all right mitt romney is a terrible choice right uh, I supported Ron Paul throughout the campaign. Now, a lot of that campaign I spent overseas, so I wasn't able to experience a lot of it. Um, but so then when it was com- coming time to the election, I was talking to one of my friends that was over there and said, you know, these, these two choices are terrible. You know, I'd rather not vote than vote for one of these two, um, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama. And he said, hey, there's this guy called named Gary Johnson who was a governor out in uh, New Mexico you should check him out. And so I voted for him then, and then that really kind of started my path towards looking at the Libertarian Party and looking at, at third parties. So what was, a, what was it about Mitt Romney that you just didn't like? He just seemed so weak and shallow and way too politician-y. Mm-hmm. You, were, you, know, you were a good judge of character. Yeah. I, I <laughs> missed it. I was like, hey, I think this guy's a pretty stand-up guy. Like, I think he's a genuinely good person, but I think I, I remember seeing him in 2007 here in Indianapolis, and he gave a press conference at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and there was like a place where you'd – they put him in the conference room, but it was very awkward because he was standing behind the sit-down desk, yeah. and it was just input question, output talking point. He was so yeah. robotic, and he carried that. He didn't learn anything mm-hmm. that next time around, but – well, the the big thing for me, I mean, the lesson learner for me was, you know, when he when he went really toe to toe to go after Trump, I, I was literally just aghast because I was like, man, if 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 you would have been this way with Obama, yeah. you know, you probably would have won the election. Um, the fact that you're more offended, you know, at this dumbass, right? You know, than than <laughs> than the guy that literally drugged the you know country into socialism, like. <laughs> Yeah, he, you know. he's thinking about running for Senate in Utah I because Orrin Hatch may retire. So so tell us, so you were in the Guard, and you were over in Afghanistan, and that was when you started to really develop libertarian leanings. What was it about being in Afghanistan that kind of started to lead you down that path? So there were a couple different things. Um, one, probably the biggest one, was a book that I read that I can't recommend to people enough about counterinsurgency. It's called Who Will Teach the Wisdom by Timothy Bax, B-A-X. And, you know, I recommend it to anybody I talk to in, in the Guard. I just bought five copies of the book for to give to some of my subordinates. 
and what he goes through, so he was in the Rhodesian Bush War, and he goes through kind of the start of his career and how they would drive around in these presence patrols and, you know, let flying the, flying the flag, letting everybody know they were there. And I'm reading that, I'm like, hey, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Like almost every day we go through the briefing of the purpose of this operation is for a presence patrol. And so then I kept reading the book, and later there's a quote in the book from one of the locals uh, that says, a roaring lion catches no prey. Mm. I'm like, holy crap, that's so simple and brilliant, and it's absolutely what we do. And so in reading through that book, you see the progression of the way they handle that that insurgency is that they integrated themselves more with the locals. They started setting up, you know, just these small teams that were watching the villages, figuring out where the insurgents were, and then they would kill them. Then they started disguising themselves as insurgents and killing the insurgents. But then later, where it finally got its, its big development is a quote where one of the locals says, when a man kills a snake, all the other snakes just rise up and hate that man. When a snake kills a snake, the snakes become afraid of that snake. And what he meant by that was, as long as an outsider was the one killing the insurgents, it was never going to stop. Mm. It had to be them that stopped it. And so I'm just sitting here looking at what we're doing over there. I'm like, oh my gosh, we are doing the same stuff they started with, started doing and realized failed 40 years before this. Right. And we've still just been executing that same strategy. We still are. I mean, that's right. the SEALs were doing presence work and then all of a sudden decided to go and I mean and you go and you look at the CNN actually went to the village where the Navy SEALs were kill, killed in Niger and you look at this village and you just go really like what what it, it, this just dump in the middle of nowhere like no offense I'm sorry I'm being culturally mm-hmm. insensitive here but it's a dump it is literally the most like think of the the most sand laden movie set you can think of Indiana Jones hung out there with a bunch of snakes in a pit like and this is these this is where the terrorist insurgents are launching out you know it just to me it just something didn't wash in, in seeing where where our soldiers actually were executing these raids is is why do so many soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq and active duty over the last 15 years, why have so many of them been attracted to Ron Paul and Gary Johnson? Well, I think that the thing about Ron Paul is that as a military member, I felt that he actually cared about the military. Mm. Um, when he talked about why he wanted to bring us home, it was he wanted to bring us home because he cared about us and didn't want to keep putting us in harm's way on a fool's errand. Right. And so that was the thing that drew attracted me most to him you know my foreign pulse my thoughts on fighting insurgency were lining up with what he was saying but he was saying in such a way that it made you want to it made you agree with him it made you want to follow him because he wanted to bring you home because he didn't want you to die and get blown up or shot for this in this foolish war with these bad tactics and so that was really what kind of attracted me to him and opened my eyes towards a lot more of of libertarianism was was here was a guy speaking you know courageously against all these neocons on stage he was the only one willing to say these wars are dumb and he did it in such a way where he cared more about us than they did Mm. 
and now there's a point where we are in the we are the military. We have elected to to sign up for this. When we need to be used, don't be afraid to use us. But make sure you're prudent about when you choose to use us. Right. You know, I think that there have been wars in our history that were just, but most of them were unjust. And so that's kind of really the friction point of what I see with a lot of the neocons that they they love to trumpet their support for the military, but they're abusing us with the way they send us out. Sure, I you know it, it's interesting because I I am not a neocon and I'm a I'm pretty much an all or nothing military um, guy. I I agree with you that like I don't want politicians running wars. I want I want I want when when we get to a point where we have to go to war, I want. I want our military leaders running the war and then coming back saying, we killed everything, it's done. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you know, a, Greg, you're a Greg Lenz libertarian. Let, yeah. Make sure it's glass before you leave. Yeah, and, and <laughs> but, the, but the thing is, I, you know, I had the pleasure, and it's just good timing with this. Uh, last night I got to see the premiere of a movie called No Greater Love, and you can go to nogreaterlovemovie.com. And, uh, and these are guys in the 101st Airborne that were over in the worst sections of Afghanistan. It was after like Restrepo and and, and and if you've seen that, you know, that one. Um, but and then the, the guys that actually there, we we interviewed we interviewed one of them, Tom, on the show last week, uh, Purple Heart winner. And, and the thing is, is when they were over there, they were in the worst section of Afghanistan, very, very worst. Literally, this was a place that Russia lost, you know, to to, F, to the insurgency there. Yeah. And um, and the thing uh I would recommend the the movie was uh, it's historic because it was done by a chaplain uh, that carried a camera and then the troops that carried GoPros and so there's no outside producer there's wow. no this is basically this was their story and then they they show you the camaraderie of war what these guys went through and then coming back even you know mm. and the the hope for them. But one of the things that these guys really said, and, and this is where I believe, too, is um, they didn't say this, but I'll say it, is these people declared war on us. And, I, and I, I don't give a shit about Congress declaring war and the who signs a piece of paper or whatever. But when a group of people come together and say, we are declaring war, we're going to rage mayhem on your people wherever we can, whenever we can, anywhere in the world. I, we're at war. I don't. I don't give a shit. And w- let me let me All finish. Right, okay. The other the other Constitu- part of that constitutionalist <laughs> in me wants to punch you right now. Yeah, that's that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. The, you know, um, but but you know, the, this war. The other part of it is that people pretend like the, the the one of the things that I see this in libertarian chains as well is somehow we're the cause of this. Somehow our manipulation and our presence in the world and everything else. Like the, these assholes were killing us from day one. You know the 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 walls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli were fighting Muslims that were taking our people and enslaving them on ships, and and so these from day one of our military, these people were killing each other long before we before America was even around. So somehow saying that these these barbaric people that have been killing everybody that came into their you know that in there and it, and it's a the other side of it is these are not people going to school on 
Monday Mm -hmm. and taking classes and looking forward to college. These people are a thousand years behind us. And, and they, they recognize terror. They recognize horror. These guys, uh, some of the stuff in the movie that's pretty, it's just epic is, you know, when, when they came into those cities, because it was outsiders that came into those cities, it wasn't, we weren't fighting the farmers in those, in those places in Afghanistan. We were fighting the insurgency. The first thing the insurgency did was take over a town, hang five people, behead them, and hang their bodies up for everybody to see that if you're, if you're not with us, we're going to kill you. And, and these are farmers and farmers' kids and everything else. The second one was that, you know, there's a part in the movie that's fucking horrifying. And that's that, you know, the, there was a kid in, in the interview him and he's bawling his eyes out about it. But, you know, there was a, a, a burqa, a, you know, a blue burqa woman walking towards them. They were on watch, uh, locked and loaded everything. And, uh, which was really weird because one, women don't walk alone. And then two, she was wearing a bright dress, which was pretty bizarre. And so they radioed and they said, you know, do we, do we have permission to, you know, shoot? And, and they said, no, you don't have permission to shoot. Um, she blew herself up, uh, killed, killed the one guy next to the guy that asked permission to shoot, uh, blew another guy's legs off. Um, and, and then these, these guys that were in this, you know, in this group had to come in, um, you know, the 101st came in and did a body search, you know, looking for her looking for every part of her body so that they could put this story together. Winds up, it was a 13 year old mentally handicapped girl Mm. that was a villager's daughter that they strapped the bomb on, you know, the, these guys did, you know, and had her, you know, walk towards them and, and, and pull the thing. And this guy, and this guy is bawling. He's like, I, you know, I'm sitting there and I go, I, I didn't want to kill a woman, you know, but I, you know, my best friend died, you know, right right next to me. And so war isn't this clean, neat little, you know, you know, get your spreadsheet out and let's figure this out. This is a dirty, nasty war with people that are not in uniforms, that are not playing by the rules, that are not playing by the Geneva Convention. So, you know, uh, you know, I, I just sit there and I just go, this is, it's a fucking disgusting thing that we're in right now. And, and I, you know, if you ask those guys, someone asked at the end of the movie, they said, you know, um, should we be over there? You know, and the guy said, they're going to find their way here. We killed them there. Like, if we stop, they're coming. And that's the thing is, not whether we like it or not, they're coming. Yeah, and, ISIS and, actually. ISIS has actually put out a call now to say, stop trying to come to build a caliphate in the Middle East. Just stay in your homeland. And that's why you see like the Uzbek, Uzbek uh, terrorist in New York City. Like it, it's it's you're going to see more and more of these mass killings with trucks with yeah. with whatever they can get their hands well, on. Well, there's a huge cultural divide. The you know part of the ignorance of this country is you know when I know I know I pissed off a bunch of my friends when we were you know open borders let the refugees in and I was like are you fucking shitting me like this is not this is this is a culture clash this is not. You know, you don't take people that treat women as secondary citizens and throw gays off of roofs and welcome them into your home. You know, there's 
there's a there's a process that needs done you know and and so we just have this general ignorance that oh well if we were just nicer to the the world they wouldn't hate us so much uh no sorry george rebut all that but <laughs> <laughs> so that's something that I think is used or that we hear a lot of it's either fight them over there or fight them over here, but that's a false choice. I think there are more options in that than, you know, mass occupation over there across the entire Middle East or deal with more terrorists here because I think that it removes some of the cause of why are we their target? Yeah, I'm not for mass occupation either, though. And so now what is the most effective way to deal with terrorism? I don't know, but I know that the way we're doing it is not working, but you know, but it's it, 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 but that's assuming that there is a way that will work. Work <laughs> in totality? No, because you know we're we're a fallen humanity has fallen. Right. But what is the most effective way to minimize it, reduce it? That's a hard question for sure. Right. But the way that we institute our foreign policy of everything is. In the United States national security interests. That's we've changed what national security means to me to encompass everything that happens in the world affects the US national security. And because of that, we then justify to ourselves doing whatever we want, wherever we want, saying, Hey, it's our national security interests. Well, we also benefit from that too. Right? Oh of course. I mean, let's not let's not pretend you know, the, the fact that we're sitting here safe and sound and everything, part of part of the, it is that we go beat the crap out of, you know, people that we disagree with around the world and we infiltrate their their politicians and we pay off well, if, bad so, people. Well, essentially we, to what you know, you're saying is we the post-World War II world, the military superpower of the United States is we built the biggest military in the in the history of the universe, yeah. um, likely, and it's as big as every military on the planet put together at this point. That threat, that might. Well, we spend more money. Let's, it, let's not it, the biggest. It's but. well, it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> China has more soldiers, yeah, of course, yeah. but more might. It it neutralizes and atrophies other people. Like like well, and it creates might, resentment. Well, you guys right. might you guys might be surprised to find out that I would love to see the military defense budget be hacked. Sure. I I, I am not a um I, I you know part of the other experience of being a veteran was seeing the waste, the absolute mm-hmm. terrible terrible waste that when when people raise the flag of patriotism and say, "Look, I'm going to increase the military budget," uh, that makes me cringe. Give, give me examples of waste. Uh, 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 sure, I'll, uh, you know, I was on the USS Spartanburg County, and and we were ordered to empty out a uh, we were ordered to empty out a uh, a room on the ship. They wanted to to make an office out of it. Um, you're on a ship in the middle of the ocean. So empty out this room, a room with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment in there. What do you think they were telling us to do? Throw it in the ocean. Throw it in the ocean. Yes, and we and we threw it in the ocean, and and so we don't. They're not telling us to throw it in the ocean, but they're telling us to throw it in right. the ocean. You know, when when I was in uh, on the USS Coombs in Philadelphia Naval, Naval Shipyards. Um, Anything that was left on the ship during decommissioning had to be inventoried. 
do you think there was anything left on that ship to be inventoried? Right. No. You know, and so there's there's things Meaning like... Meaning it just found a new home in somebody's garage? On the bottom of the ocean, oh, in okay. somebody's garage, where, wherever it was. And so, and so I, you know, part of my, you know, that's where I'm, uh, you know, from a, a libertarian standpoint is, is I, I do believe in constraints that in a time of war, lift the constraints that, again, let the battle be, you know, done. But in a, in a time of peace, we, this ridiculous notion that we don't have enough money invested in our military is, is, is just ridiculous. The, now, you want to talk about military pay for members? Sure, let's talk about that. But let's track down every dollar. Well, first, yeah, I mean, just before for we, instance, you know, it, going into Iraq where you didn't have the right plates on the on the uh, Humvees and it cost hundreds of soldiers' lives in IEDs when we're spending two billion dollars on a fighter jet we don't need. What, what were some of the ways well, that, that you experienced, well, George? But but I, I want to add something to that. You know, there's this thing called milspec, and you you know, you mm-hmm. know military specifications. Milspec, in my opinion, and this is going to piss veterans off or whatever, is milspec is that great way to keep other contractors the hell out of your contract. Mm. And that's that. Come up with 42 different ways to test a screw so that nobody compete with you on selling a $400 screw to Mm. the military. You know, and so it winds up being this welfare program for corporations and, and politicians are literally too weak to stop it. Yeah. Because when you're sitting in you know, uh, Western Pennsylvania and you've got 10,000 people that are working at a tank plant. And I'm just making that up. That's not a true story, but, and we've got these tanks literally going into warehouses where they, they dry up and, and they're never used because we're not going to have a tank battle. Right. You know, but these politicians are too weak need to say, we need to cut that out of the budget because they're going to now all of a sudden unemployment. I mean, that's why Obama, you know, as as non you know military friendly as he was, you didn't see him cut it. Mm-hmm. Why didn't he cut it? Because the unemployment rate would have skyrocketed if military defense contractors had to start all of a sudden closing their doors. What's what's some of the ways you saw, George? So what I see as being, I think, probably most damaging and pervasive as far as waste is concerned is the way the military views the spending of money and their budgets. So. If you, any business that has a budget, you know, if you're given a budget of a million dollars for a project and you come in at $500,000, people are high-fiving you because you just saved the company half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. You do that in the military and they're, they say, well, now you got to go figure out how to spend that $500,000. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're rep- you borderline reprimanded for turning money in. I, I'll tell you that that was Desert Storm, Desert Shield. When mm-hmm. Prior to Desert Storm, Desert Shield, the ship that I was on, was constantly having breakdowns where we we did not have budget to fix things. Mm. Constantly. We were not ready. And and so but when Desert Storm Desert Shield went through, we had open shit. It was open shit season, which basically meant you didn't have to get an authorizing signature. You could go buy whatever you wanted. And and that's when I started mm. to see that was all of a sudden they did hold it was a lot like a budget you know, for a company, you know, before Desert Storm, Desert Shield. And 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 people were demoted if they spent the runny, money wrong and didn't maintain operational readiness and everything else. Right. After Desert Storm, Desert Shield, it was 
everybody and it's they raised the patriot flag right mm-hmm. oh we open up the floodgates yeah that's you know? how i remember the hammer the yeah. eight million dollar hammer and yeah. the five thousand dollar ash chair whatever and i've i've sat in meetings before so the federal fiscal year ends on september 30th of every year i've sat in meetings where you know mid-august early september they're saying how are we we've still got this much money left how are we going to spend it <laughs> it's terrible. and yeah. especially all the when you get down kind of to some of the lower levels you know each level up kept a little cut for themselves just in case. Mm. You know, it's kind of an an emergency budget. Well, if they didn't spend it at the end of the year, all of a sudden all this money just comes flooding down, and they're saying, how are you going to spend this money? How are you mm. going to spend this money? And you can't turn it back. They won't let you turn it back in. And even people that are trying to be prudent with the government's money are sitting there saying, you know, let's spend it on things that we need. Let's yeah. not waste it. But we have to spend it. That's that's how it is in congressional offices too, mm. where Rand Paul gets, you know, he sends it back every year, and so the, he gets. But in every other congressional well, office, let's not lie. I mean, I worked for big corporate America, yeah. and it's they the all same do it too. too. Yeah, you know. And so, so that's something that, I, and I've challenged people on before too, where they would say, "Well, if we don't spend it, we won't get the money next year." And I say, "Has anybody ever tried that?" Yeah. Right. <laughs> but that's the belief that's of, question. you know, even when it comes down to ammunition. Oh, we got to shoot this ammunition because if we don't and we ask for it next year, then we won't get it. It's like, how do you know? Are they really going to withhold ammunition that you're asking for (laughs) because you were prudent? Yeah. Because you were prudent with it the year before? Let's try it. So I want to go back to some of Doug's points because I can hear the speakers of every libertarian being lit on fire <laughs> based on, on, a, on pretty much – and I imagine you, as mm-hmm. Doug was talking about you know, non-interventionism well, and the, foreign and power. I, I, oh, hold I, on. Well, I want to say to you, though, right. I, I do believe Congress should declare war. Sure. I absolutely, as soon as someone says, we're going to war with you, I believe they should get their – go find their balls – Right. And go vote yes to war and and go do the job and get it's, it over. Instead of these vague defense exactly. authorization Absolutely. acts that are broad or like the idea that Donald Trump is the only person on, on the planet that has the power to fire that. Like, oh, it's ridiculous. It, 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 there's no sense that the president of the United States, especially a Donald Trump, should have be the only person to totally turn the key agree. for the nuclear, nuclear weapons. Yeah. I turned into Bush there. Nuclear. <laughs> now, so, George, you... I mean, what what about being over there and being in those cultures and being in that situation started to turn you into a non-interventionist? Well, so part of it was just the way that our military could and would interact with people. So one huge thing to Afghans, whether it was the police, the army, or just the local villagers, was that they wanted to eat with you. Hmm. They wanted to serve you a meal. But... So kind of in my role, I was more of an attachment. I didn't necessarily have... Honestly, Doug, we should sign up. We should go. <laughs> you and I would be great. Like, great I, ambassadors for America. Feed us. I, I had great meals in Kuwait and <laughs> uh, United Arab Emirates. And, yeah, I, and so I was an attachment. I wasn't in charge of planning necessarily any of the missions. And the platoon leaders that were over there, it was always... They never wanted to eat with them. It was always, well, I guess we'll eat... Yeah, oh, no, we got to get back. They would make up like, oh, we got to get back to the base and do maintenance on our truck. And they always wanted to get out of it. And it's like, wait a second. If we are going to do counterinsurgency, if we can't even build a relationship with the Afghan National Police that want to work with us, Mm. how are we ever going to build a relationship with the elders? And 
so in part of my role, I had cash that was available for me to do what we'll call quick impact projects, mm. where if I identified a need while meeting with the police or with elders, I had lim- a couple thousand dollar limits that I could spend on projects. We mostly did it on wells or road repair. Mm-hmm. Well, so there was one point where I sat in a negotiation through an interpreter for three hours about five well projects. And when it, the meeting started, I was it was a full meeting of five elders, two interpreters, and about ten other Americans. By the time the meeting was over, all the other Americans had left mm. because it wasn't important to them. Mm. Right. That building that relationship and that getting to and ultimately, and I thought that I overspent. I was like, man, when I get back, my boss is going to be pissed that I spent all my money. And when I got back and told him, he looked at me. He goes. That's incredible. I can't believe that you were able to get through that meeting with him and you know get that working relationship. And I was like, yeah, I just sat there and talked to him for three hours. <laughs> right. I listened to them, and you know when they had a gripe, I said there was a gripe about a previous meeting that I wasn't at, but they had a gripe, and I would just listen to it and apologize for it and say, you know, I'm sorry I wasn't there. You guys should have been included as well. And I just worked with them and I listened to them and. That's something that is lost in the way our military does counterinsurgency. And I think that's a lot of that is because of the tactics of our nation in doing counterinsurgency that we're going to go over there and we're going to, you know, take out, just kill the terrorists, take them out. Mm -hmm. You know, we need a relaxed rules of engagement so that we can kill as many terrorists as possible. And then we're going to come in and build them a school and they're going to love us. No, that's not the way it works. You know, we need to sit down and build a relationship with them, understand what it is they need, understand how we can help, how we can partner with them, and not impose what we want to do on them. You know, but even, and even should we be there in the first place? Sure. But I think another thing that... that, That's a question, though, right? It's because what you're talking about is still intervention. And that's why, I like... That's when you said that, like it was kind of George versus my view of, of it. I look at exactly what you're saying, and I say that's absolutely logical. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't I, I think that's that's great. What it shows to me is that there was poor military mm-hmm. leadership, absolutely. You know, on on how we were working over there, and and whether we were going to, and, and, you know, whether we were doing more harm than than not. But it was still. In, Intervention. Now, yeah. one area and of inter- Petraeus was somebody who understood that mm-hmm. whole concept and was fired because, well, first he was fired because he yeah. was yeah. fucking his book editor, <laughs> and so. But then you know, and then McChrist. I mean, I guess the the firings of Petraeus and McChrystal, in terms of McChrystal talking badly about yeah. commanders and Rolling Stone, bad luck. Yeah, and then Petraeus leaking state secrets, which were not nearly as classified as what Hillary did. Right. But that's now, nonetheless. There's a lot but, of military people that will disagree with me, but I think drone strikes are the worst intervention that we can have. Really, because I, I agree with you. I I really feel strongly. I people keep asking me this. They just think, well, that's a you know, there's not a loss of you know military life. And I was like, I think in any war that should be the risk. Like the, I I hate being in a in a war where we don't have to weigh the blood of our own people. Yeah. So, the, uh, that's a scary The thing. New York Times did the daily podcast yesterday was with an Iraqi family with in the middle of a drone strike. I mean, they basically 
talked about that because in in some ways, Georgia, I, I would look at it and go, well, I would rather have you playing a video game and not putting your life at risk. And, and but in some respects, I could see the other side of the, of it where if we don't have skin in the game, then we're going to make more mistakes. We should have to we should have to weigh the cost of human yeah. life. Period. Whether it's a, a an enemy or our own. I, I just don't think it should be easy to just sit there and blow people up all over the world. I, I you know, that's that's where I think mm-hmm. you and I have common ground is that that's not, you know, I started out by saying what I loved about the military was I was in other countries representing mm-hmm. my own. I wasn't out killing people. Right. That wasn't the point, you know, and th- that's exactly what we're talking about here is that is that there's there's alternative ways of doing this. I. The other one to the two and, and is I, I really too also believe that there was a transition when I got out of the Navy that I was I was glad when I got out of the Navy. And and that was um, one of the things when I got that Red Cross message and, and, it, and it was, you know, I'm sitting there and my I don't know who my son's with. He's with friends or something. I don't know whether my wife's going to die or, or be alive or not. We were going through an engineering um an engineering assessment basically in, in Haifa, Israel. And, um, and so my, my direct officer said, well, all I can do is authorize you 24 hours emergency leave Mm. from Haifa, Israel. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. (laughs) And so now the funny part of it is I went and talked to my, you know, counselor, the, the, every ship has a, you know, a counselor. and And I said, what do I do? And he goes, take it. He was like, get back over there and then put in for you humanitarian transfer. But, but the, the thing that it shocked me after six years of being a, you know, just an incredible sailor, I, I got in trouble at first, but I was awarded, you know, um, national Navy achievement medal over there. I, I did my damnedest. I loved the Navy. I was spit and polished by the end of it. Everything else was when my wife was OD, they didn't want me to go home. Mm. What? Because they wanted to pass an exam. Well, kiss my ass, you know? <laughs> and so, and so, and that's when I really started to see, I don't know what your experience is with the National Guard. I started to see people making, you know, E7, which is basically the enlisted, you know, seventh rank or in, in the Navy. It's a chief. I think it's what, Sergeant Gunny, First Class. Sergeant First Class. Gunny in the Marine Corps. Yeah, yeah. I started to see these guys making it in eight years, seven years. Mm. And that was unheard of. Like when I first went in the Navy, you know, if you made E7, you were probably in for 15 plus years. And I really felt like it, all of a sudden it turned into this political beast where people were, were you know, getting rank for politics. And right. They, and they abandoned being honestly, you know, military, you know, and, and, and it turned into this, how can I get advancement quicker? How can I get a, advancement quicker? And I, and I, and I, and I feel like I started to look at these chiefs that there was, you know, once upon a time when you went to a chief, it was like going to your grandfather. You right. Know? This was a guy that would kick someone's ass for you and kick your ass if you needed it. And and by the time I got out, I, I was like sick to my stomach seeing what these guys, these guys were just pawns that would do whatever, you know, the officers told yeah. them to do. Like typical government bureaucracy. Yeah. But I want to circle back to the drones thing because I want to I want to hear your perspective on the drones. Yeah. Why do you think they're Why do you think they're a problem? Well, so one of the biggest problems with them is that they're they're not as discerning as what they're claimed to be. They're not as precision with what people claim to be because mm-hmm. usually whenever we fire fire them, it's at a group, and so you don't have 
positive identification on everybody within that group. Hmm. Now, the Obama, all, including the current one, the past three administrations, will just kind of group all the military-age males. Those were terrorists. No civilians were killed. Like, come on. <laughs> From up there, you don't know that. Right. There's no way of knowing that. Any women were killed? Uh, well, they were probably a part of it. They might have been. But from up there, you don't know that. And just what it communicates to the people down there that they have to constantly be in fear of having that dropped on them. I mean, that just makes a right picking for you know the Taliban or terrorist organization to come in and say, look how evil these people yep. are. Right. Yep. And so drone intervention, I am totally against. You know, if we want to use armed drones in a force-on-force conflict against you know another world power in a war like that, that's different than using them in counterinsurgency. And so how do we solve an insurgency problem, a terrorism problem? I don't know, but coming in primarily with force isn't the right answer, especially an impersonal force like that. Now, you guys talked about a couple episodes ago, Najir and us being over there and just kind of in general our training partnerships. Probably what I would guess... Most people, even within the Guard, almost nobody outside the Guard knows that most National Guard states have as one or two foreign countries that they are state partners with. Mm. And so they will send people over to that country to, cha- to train, and then that country will send people to us to train. So like in Ohio, their state partners are Hungary and Serbia. And so they will do a lot of cross-training. That is an area where I think that we can b- help you know, build good partnerships, help stave off some of those negative aspects of, of terrorism because of the way it's a, we're kind of helping each other out. It's a partnership. We're learning more about each other. I mean, whenever they come here, whenever we go there, cultural integration and understanding is a major part of it. Yeah. It's So it sounds exactly kind of like what we talk about on this program all the time, which is human-to-human contact is what breeds good feelings Mm. and separating, isolating, ostracizing, demonizing, and then doing things that reinforce that notion are are kind of what's happening in a lot of these places. Mm -hmm. So, and and it goes back to like in Japan, when we dropped the bomb, it, it reaffirmed to everyone in Japan after we... I mean, we basically completely destroyed through bombing the entire island of Japan, and then we dropped two nuclear weapons on them. Like, we had decimated that island. So they already had just this terrible notion of us because they have been told forever, Americans are monsters, and then terror from the skies is unleashed. And so, it, and, and so you know, to make that mistake again, it just mm-hmm. doesn't seem to... I don't think it was a mistake. <laughs> of course you don't. <laughs> but but uh, well, I mean, I, mean, there, I pers- there's, there's plenty of there's plenty of horrors in that 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 aren't you know that people aren't educated on from coming the opposite. I mean, millions of Chinese just oh, absolutely yeah. decimated. So read uh, read the the Japanese yeah. uh, infestation of yeah. the Koreas. But no, so I mean. As somebody who has been there, do you think, George, that we should be there? In what capacity should the American military continue to be in a place like Afghanistan? Certainly not a large capacity. Um, Whether we should be there at all, I'm a little bit up in the air on. I can see both sides of it that, you know, we're 16 years in. We have, you know, 
we've literally not made progress. Except that the Taliban isn't in full control. Other than that, we haven't made any progress. I saw something from Reason earlier that this year was their highest yield in opium. Mm. Okay. You know, the area I was in in 2012 is now under the hands of the Taliban again. At mm. least it was for a period about a year ago. And so, you know, certainly with the same strategy, we should not be there. If we need to mostly pull out and then relook at a new strategy and send a little bit back in, you know, that reflects that partnership building element to it, then that's a maybe. Now, if they don't want our help, there has to be a certain point where we say, okay, this is the choice that you guys have made. If you don't want our help, if you're going to succumb to, you know, the temptations of the Taliban, you can have it. If you yeah, want to live under terror, the, you can have well, what, it. Hold, hold, hold but, on just but, a but it doesn't stop at the borders. I want to I ask something directly about that because one of the things that I've, I've always heard about the problem, why the Taliban comes back in, is that Americans, even though we are there, everybody says, well, what if we pull out and we abandon them and then it's the Taliban will infest it. But the problem is that Americans, in, in the eyes of many of the villagers, don't keep their word because – they they do things like not not follow through on promises or if they build a school it's 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 a photo op and then the school collapses and it's not even a real school it's got dirt floors and it's just a weird concrete structure well it's because like, we don't know who they are you know right. the cultural training is just it's so basic you know it's a couple hour powerpoint slide that that's our cultural training for for soldiers that for go soldiers over there. that go over there you know, we had this interactive thing to try and learn a little bit of the language that was absolutely pointless. After you walked away from it, you didn't remember a single thing that you had learned, and so it was just useless. And so one of the things, one of the little quips of wisdom from that book that I referenced earlier, he says, if you do not understand my customs, you will not understand who I am or what I am. And that is the fatal flaw in the way we view things. Now, having the con- having conventional soldiers over there to try and you know all of a sudden flip them around to where they do understand how to culturally integrate that's not going to work but even with our special operations you know, special forces which is the army special operations counterinsurgency you know integrating with the culture that's one of the things they're trained on but they over there from what i saw they did more direct action raids type stuff than they did cultural integration. Mm. You know, as far as living with them, they lived on their own compound. They they weren't totally integrated with the populace. They were rolling around in in SUVs or, you know, Polaris Rangers that had machine guns on them. They're wearing all their kit, rolling around. And so you're not, you can't integrate with somebody while you have a machine gun so, right so the idea that we we look like an unreliable partner to them is probably and an, an aggressive partner. And an aggressive, yeah. okay. but but there's but there's not one people over there. There's multiple people over there, and 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 I I think like watching that movie last night and listening to those guys really opened my eyes to this. That it's not we're not dealing with one person when we're in an outpost in Afghanistan. We're dealing with the native people that are just trying to farm and live their lives peacefully. And then we're dealing with insurgents that are mm-hmm. terrorizing those people and and want to kill us and, and are using them, you know, as 
human shields, as suicide bombers, as everything else. And so it's not as easy as just, well, get to go in. Because, I mean, these guys uh, in this movie, they said the people loved them. What they hated was that we did leave, mm. you know, and we and so we protected them. We got the Taliban out. That was great. They got to go take care of their farms. They got to start all over again. They got peace. And then what would happen? Change presidents, change general, change whatever. And we and we pull out, and the Taliban comes right have, back. Have you seen War, uh, War Machine on Netflix? Uh-uh. Either of you? Mm-mm. I highly recommend it. It's basically along those concepts. So, so what's the what's the solution? Well, that's what I say. I the thing is, is I, that's where I don't think I think we we talk a lot about what we're doing wrong, but I don't know that it's wrong. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. That's the thing is, we don't know that it's wrong. We don't know that it's it's it might be the best thing that we could possibly do. We don't know, you know, and and I, I and that's where I get, you know, I don't mind us being over there killing people that are taking thirteen-year-old mentally handicapped girls and strapping bombs on them. I don't mind us being over there one bit, you know, trying to clean up that mess, you know, from a from a humanitarian standpoint. I don't so you're that. okay with? I mean, we're in we're in six now, going into seven. I mean, uh, no, I, mean, I, I mean, we're in seven active war fronts. I yeah, mean, we're we're well, we're 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 not though. We're piddling around and and doing all this political bullshit, and that's where I I agree with you from before. Is constitutionally, I would like us to see us declare war, get a fucking game plan together, execute that game plan, see if it works. If it doesn't do, come back, like George said, reevaluate the game game plan, try another way. And just keep doing it until we start to get our, our hands on this. You know, I, I don't, you know, I, it's just that it's just that I reject the notion that I reject the notion that this is somehow our fault and we're aggravating things. I, I when someone's running at you trying to kill you. You know, asking if you're aggravating that person is not a logical question, you know. With one of the things you said when you were referencing that movie that we showed up, we drove out the Taliban, and then we left. Well, I think that there lies the problem is that we were the ones driving out the Taliban, not them. Not not farmers? (laughs) They're not just farmers. I mean, they are. I was. They're not just farmers. <laughs> they have police forces, and their police forces aren't like ours. Yeah. Um, they're more like a lower level military, or what they're the way their police forces operate. They're not investigators. We we, we spend a lot of money on their police yeah. forces. They ought to and be so, a, <laughs> right. And so well, there's still years behind. Now, you know? how do we empower them to where the the Afghan national police, the Afghan local police, right. the villagers, they are the ones driving out the terrorists. How do we empower them? That's the question we need to answer. Yeah, I agree. But us doing the heavy lifting and then us leaving, they're just going to fill that void right back in. Yeah. If the Afghans are the one driving them out or the Nigerians or the Nigerians or where, yeah, whatever country you want to choose, you're right. they have to be the ones driving them out. Yeah. So so you, you, you're you a non-interventionist? Yes. George? Okay. So you... De- defining intervention as... Our military force, right. you know, imposing on them. 
So at what scale? So, I mean, it, it, because you could be a non-interventionist in the, in the way that, like, my uneducated view. Well, I wouldn't Ni- say Nigeria, uneducated. Nigeria, we were non-interventionalists from a force standpoint. Exactly. And, and now we're interventionists. Right. You know? I mean, so, you know, from my point of view, I wouldn't say I'm uneducated. I would say that I'm, I'm more ignorant of the situation than obviously you are with experience. Uh, non-interventionists, like, well, just bring them all home. We're not, we shouldn't be in 170 countries. Bring them all home, blah, That's blah, right. blah. That's right. Think of it. Right. Yeah. Like, wh- what is what is your view of non If you were to define non-intervention, what would you define it as? That's a really challenging question. I think for me, when I look at intervention into a foreign country's affairs, it's when we're not doing what's best for them, we're doing what's best for us. So when we're trying to impose our needs on their country, that's when, whether it's militarily, politically, economically, that is when I think that we are having a negative intervention. Let me say, everyone that does diplomacy does diplomacy with the goal of putting their interest first. I think it's force that is probably the the dividing Mm -hmm. line there, where we are, we don't really care what's best for. We're not. We don't know what's going to happen in Iraq. We just know that we're going to topple Saddam with force, as opposed to using diplomacy. I think that's a very clear dividing line. Like North Korea, it, there's a very clear dividing line. Our interest as Americans is to support South Korea, to support Japan, to support capitalist nations, to support America, and not having Alaska and our, our and Guam and other places bombed. There's an interest in diplomacy. And making sure that they don't use force, but we also should not use force. Well, I think diplomacy is, when it's best done, is when you're trying to figure out what's best for both parties, or however many parties involved. And you even look at that, and I can't remember where I read this recently, talking about it from a business perspective. If a businessman is known that he always gets the best deal, he always gets the upper hand of everybody else, eventually nobody's going to want to deal with him. Mm. It's when a decision a deal can be made that benefits both parties, elevates both parties, that's when it's going to be most effective. And so if we are going to intervene, it's not, well, this is what America needs, so we're going to force you to do what we want for our best interests, and then that just pisses them off, and then they hate us. It's, okay, here's what's good for us, here's what's good for you, how can we both, how can we make this happen for both of us? That's where our intervention is going to have a positive impact. And so, like I said, with some of the, ways we partner with other militaries of, you know, sending people over there, doing some exercises, learning about their culture, learning about them, eating their food, them coming over here, doing the same. That's where we're helping each other. Mm-hmm. You know, their military is getting better. Our military is getting better. Our countries are, are building a stronger relationship. That's a positive intervention, I think. Where it's negative is you guys are going to do this because we said so and we're bigger and we're stronger and you have no choice. Right. And and our economy is so strong. And and if, if our corporate rate weren't so high specifically, uh, we won't get Doug started on that. I can't imagine the taxes that you've got to pay. Uh, it's fucking I'm, I'm currently figuring out how to pay the IRS what they want. Uh, but, you know, if we were more competitive economically, uh, I, I it, George came prepared. And so yeah. I want to make sure he has a whole list of things. <laughs> so I want to make sure that we... That that prep work. That is there anything on well, on the list that you kind of talked about? You and you're you gotta head out soon. Uh, I still have a good 
25, 30 minutes. All right, cool. One, one of the things that we didn't touch on at the very beginning mm-hmm. before we started to talk about you know wars and stuff is there's another side of the military that I really want to make clear to people too, and that's that um, I, I, I went to high school up in Vancouver, Canada, right? You know, so um, pretty multicultural, no black people, but multicultural otherwise. And, and, uh, and when I joined the Navy, that was the, the most black people I ever saw in my life was, you know, getting off, you know, the bus at boot camp and everything else. And I said, and I saw incredible things. I saw black people that hated white people and I saw white people that hated black people. And then I saw white people that hated black people that liked white people. And I hated, yeah. you know, I, I saw, basically it was the first time in my life that I really, really saw true, like, holy crap, people hate me because I'm white. And and people hate this guy because he's black. Within eight weeks, that was disappeared. I mean, mm. I mean, wiped out. My 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 chief was a uh, a black guy walker. Uh, if I would have said my chief was a black guy, he probably would have kicked my ass just mm. just for saying that. And and um and so I had I had chief warrant officers and I had um, chief walker and I had these guys that were they were like my dad. And I mean that seriously. These are men that taught me to be men, and I and I didn't give a shit what color they were. I didn't give give a crap what religion they were. Um, most of the time, when you went to mass in in the navy, or you know, and I'm sure it's in army the same way, there was Baptist, Jews, <laughs> uh, you know, um, evangelists, all in the same, all going to the same ceremony, mm. you know. And and it was the one. And so if 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 you want to look at a utopia of you know it wasn't perfect. There there was people that definitely you know uh, hung out and 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 still kept their racist ways and everything else. But for the most part, the other piece of this that I want to talk about was this is forced integration. I mean, mm. I mean forced integration where you absolutely drew respect for the other person and and you and you would kill for that person and and it was the one place in and time in my life that before the navy i uh, i didn't pay a lot of attention to race in the navy race just didn't matter at all and yeah. after the navy was when i started to see racism again and I, and i and so for people out there that they hear about the gender stuff and they hear about you know uh there's one thing in the military is that most of the people came from one, uh, I'd say underclass, right? These are people that couldn't afford to go to college and, 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 and everything else. They went for a trade or they went because their, their family went there. So these aren't our Yale and Harvard, you know, right. grad Ivy league folks. And, uh, and, and, and people will make a big deal about rape in the military and make a big deal about this in the military. I would say measure up any military against any major city and and you're going to see the class of people that came out of the inner city that went into the military have one one thousandth of the problems with crime and family issues and everything else because cause the military, we were colorblind. It just right. didn't matter. And so I just wanted to throw that out there, that that's another aspect of the military that I thought was – just freaking amazing that I'm and, thankful for. And that, that kind of leads me to back to Arvin to where, you know, part of, part of my belief is that government government's made up of people and it, it creates perverse incentives because it forces some people to do certain things they don't want to do while enriching other people in, in 
ungodly ways and benefits other people in in bad ways and and it's and it's harmful because of that force but the people in government institutions people in military it's they're not bad people uh i think arvin you know in going back to your your comment it just struck me like i don't think there was a more telling comment in this entire podcast than i be- I liked Ron Paul because I felt like Ron Paul cared about me. And so as members of the military, when I read this to you, I want to hear how it makes you feel. I know what you're going to read. Guys, we shouldn't speak badly of rapists. Many people rape, and they vote. If we attack them, they might not vote libertarian. That's how some of you sound when you suggest we pander to public school teachers, quote-unquote, and members of the military welfare complex in order not to lose their vote. And then and then I followed up with military recruiting is human trafficking. I'm going to go to George first. What are your thoughts on that? It's it's hard to even put it into words because it is so ignorant and naive. Because it views this entire class of people, which is a massive class if you look at people that work for government on a local, state, federal level, you know, in the military to just blanket all of them as moral degenerates, in effect. Um, which you can argue that he was making an analogy, but the what he chose to make an analogy with kind of imposes on that group or projects onto that group a moral degeneracy. Because, mm-hmm. okay, if you want to... Yeah, taxation's theft. And so, okay, if we are a beneficiary of taxation, then we are part of the theft. Theft is different than rape. You know, rape is so violent and destructive and taking of what, imposing yourself onto your victim in a way that theft isn't. And so to even use that as an example just shows a complete ignorance of people that work for the government, our motivations for working for the government. You know, when I look, that was one of the things that I wanted to talk about was people's motivations for joining. They vary a lot. Some of them it's for the benefits. Some of them it's because they see it as honorable. Um, their family did it. Some of them it's to be a part of a community, to learn a skill or a trade. Some of them, they look at, it's a bit more of a simplistic view. They see terrorists. Terrorists are evil people. Evil people need killed. And so it's a bit simplistic of, okay, is this the best way to end terrorism? But that they're doing it for their end that they're doing it for is good, that they want to end evil. And so to just blanket that with that rapist statement, and to me, the worst thing he posted was the gold star on Veterans Day that said, you tried, or at least you tried. To me, that was just unbelievably stupid, unbelievably offensive, because we shouldn't celebrate any time somebody dies doing something that they think is good. Whether you like the means that it's done by or not, you know, if you're totally against military intervention, then you should mourn when somebody dies serving in the military because their death was to you a waste. And so to poke fun at them and laugh at them shows that you really don't care about the people. What you really care about is your money. Mm-hmm. And to me, it, w- it revealed his true character. And like I said, I... Saul, you know, I've seen him speak in person before. I was impressed with 
the way he spoke, with the class that he gave. But because of the garbage that he would post like that, I had to unfollow him. And I totally support state parties that are trying to get him removed as vice chair because of what he has revealed his character to be. Yeah. Now, Doug, first as a as a veteran, second as a Libertarian Party curious person, and third as a marketing professional, what are your thoughts on these comments? <laughs> well, the first thing I'd like to say is that I'm so glad that we had a military welfare system that created ARPANET that enabled the Internet, which allowed him to make these remarks on, uh, on Facebook. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's ironic, yes. And, and and how long before you have to? But I've got twenty minutes still. What's the hard out? Eight forty-five. Walking right. out the door. Cool. You know, the, the, and and the list goes on and on. Like I, I give you like flat screens. You know, uh, people don't even realize this, but you know, the military when flat screens first came out, they were they were they were not for the private sector. They were just absolutely ridiculously expensive to manufacture and everything else. What what made the factories for mass production and everything else was that it was instant, like the lightweight, you know, that we could get rid of CRTs on, on military stuff and we could out, outfit all of the, the equipment and save so much in volume and weight and transportation and logistics with those um, that, you know, that's what drove down the initial, you know, costs of, you know, things like that. And so there's, you know, of course that's a, you know, definitely a social way of looking at you know sure, investment he, but, I, that, but, I always i always but the fact not is, to get into an argument about it because i want to get yeah. back to arvin but like private economies if you if you're an inventor and you create yeah. something that replaces crts the benefits much better if you're a private entrepreneur yeah. than if you're doing it for the military but uh, yeah and but, and but my my point is that they're they're um just saying all bad comes out of the military mm. is just not a it's just not it's really ignorant. It's just a, a false, you know, thing. Um, I, like George said, you know, I mean, the extremes to which he just absolutely—it's absolutes that he's utilizing, and those are those are absolutes that you know uh, are are when applied to anything are really a sad thing to do. It, these are the same things that you know all liberals are bad people, or all neocons are monsters, or all all all. Like, it's it just. It's just a, it's such a childish, juvenile way of looking at the world. Um, and I, honestly, someone like him, I, if he, if he had any uh, balls, and I, and I truly mean this, you know, he, he would go to a, an army base and hang out with veterans for, you know, a, a week or, or a Navy base or whatever and watch what they actually do for a living. You know, and that's that's the intriguing thing to me is that when you when you get embedded, I, I had no idea what the military was about. You know, before I got in the military, I had no idea that, you know, uh, in the Navy, you know, it's it's definitely trade first. You know, and then, um, you know, somewhere way down the line is military. <laughs> you know, uh, outside of wearing a uniform. You know, um, but but I owe I owe my entire career to the military. I. The, the attention to detail that I have, the process and discipline that I have on, on the way that I troubleshoot things, the analytical approach that I take to things um, was crafted through, through the Navy. If you would have sent me to an electrical trade school, there's no way that I would have had as much practical as trying to keep a ship afloat you sure. know, out at sea for four and a half years. 
and and so the um, people like me come back and we are uber productive citizens. You know, that's the the other side of the veteran you know thing that I really hate is it, I do despise the fact that you know a majority of the homeless, like even in Indianapolis, are are veterans. And the you know, and then we talk about veteran suicide, you know, quite a bit, and PTSD, and and there's some stigmas associated with veterans, but the vast, vast, vast majority. I'm sure he met people every single day of his life that he absolutely respected, and he didn't know that they served. Right. Right. You know, so he says these monstrous things with without even you know acknowledging that part of the character that they had, you know. Uh, was the fact that they're in the military. You said, you, you know, you mentioned uh, earlier, do you, you know, was there a relationship between being in the military and being libertarian? Of course there is, you know, because it's it's working um, together as a team, but individually you're respected. You're, you're, you know, the ribbons that you have, you know, show the sacrifices that you made. The stripes that you wear are are absolutely, you're branded with, you know, the knowledge that you have and the experience that you have. And so everything about the military, as people look, as someone like him looks at it and sees just a giant bunch of green guys, guys like us look at it and we go, oh, wow, that guy has a sharpshooter. That guy has a this, that right. guy has a that. Yeah, he's looking at it again in a, in a very flat, binary way yeah. without the, the nuance yeah. of how the world actually works. And like like I've said before, our Facebook page we've got eighty seven thousand likes. The top three jobs, based on the analytics in the back end, are veterans, yeah. lawyers, and then government officials and teachers. Yeah. And so the people who interact the gov- with the government the most, they're the ones who have. You, you guys can sit here and say the waste, the the wasted time, the wasted effort, the wasted you know like all of all of this podcast. I just listen to this and I go, okay, well my suspicions, a lot of it are confirmed correct about why we should be non-interventionists and why we need to decrease the military and you know i think i kudos to george for kind of shading in some things where i go okay as a non-interventionist these things are probably beneficial uh in my lifetime we will never not have a standing army so like it's like for me to sit here and argue that we should not have a standing military and honor what the founders laid out and what I think is best, and we shouldn't be in 170 countries. Like that's just not going to happen in my lifetime. So yeah. I can learn and then advocate. And like what what Arvin is doing is Arvin is just shoving his eye in. And, and and I'll be quite candid. Like I think if you're somebody who, as a person who has been a libertarian for 10 years, and and you get to a point where you you start to see the moral like the moral projection of your own values into society and where your income is coming from, that taxation th- is theft line, I don't think actually does anything to promote libertarianism. Yeah. I think it actually, like, just... It, it. What it truly does is kind of mocks of the very real point where I say, I appreciate that your paycheck comes from your service, but your money is also coming from my money. And so how do you, George, justify having a job where you are taking taxpayer money if you're a libertarian. I can't have that. I can't ask you that question if I haven't built a relationship with you because that question is inherently an attack on your being, on your identity. And so, you know, having built a, a relationship with you via the podcast and you listening and knowing my intentions and why I'm saying that, 
Like, but if I just started out the 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 relationship between you and I, shoving my thumb in your eye, going, "You're a bad person. There's no reason for us to even talk." We're never. I'm never going to even get to ask you that question. Well, that- right, and there is a huge tension within myself, within a lot of other people, libertarian leaning people within the military and that work for the government of that struggle between. You know, this is what I think the government's role should be, but this is what it currently is. And so when you look at the kind of the way, now I'm not an anarcho-capitalist, and so I believe that we should still have a military. Now, if I was king for a day and could choose how our military is set up, I would do almost no active military and would have an operational guard that is able to kind of stand up and, and sit down that would be ready to defend the nation and be ready to act if we needed, but wouldn't have the massive expense of a standing army. But so as but I... You, you would still need the logistics. You would right. still need You would have, still need yeah. some, some people yeah. that work full-time yeah. for it. But so as I have that tension within me, it's like, okay, right now the government has sucked up a massive amount of money and resources. And so there are no national defense jobs that aren't in the military. Mm-hmm. Now, if we lived in a totally libertarian society and there would be some sort of defense job that was private. Okay, I would do that. But we don't have that option. But we would still be paying for it with right. taxpayer money. Right. Well, like that, that's, the, yeah. that's to me is the, like I love that what you're saying because there's, there's, the, there's the scale, right? There's the scale of zero military <laughs> and then there's the scale of too much military. Right. What, what he's saying is all military is bad all right he's not he's not saying well we should have you know a little standing force that you know like you said that's voluntary trained you know everything else he's saying no these guys are just a bunch of rapists and and welfare you know hoggers uh and and that's so you're not you're not even opening the scale you know you're just literally saying zero it's the intellectual level of conservatives going well I'm not even going to deal with the fact that he may or may not be a child molester. He's just not a Democrat. <laughs> yeah, like, what we started same, with. Yeah, exactly. He, po- he posted today, and I don't know if he deleted it or not, but he posted today that what government program would you end? And I just wrote, I would tear up all the streets outside of your house. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, your list, before before we go, I want to make sure, did you cover everything that you felt like you, you wanted to say? For the most part, that last point was kind of the big one. That That is a daily tension that, I, that yeah. I feel of, okay, should I still be working full-time for the military? But it's more than, kind of, Doug talked about this a lot, that it's more than just a job. It's a community, mm-hmm. and so plus I have a contract, so it's not so simple as we'll just pull out. You, you, it, right? Okay. You didn't. Okay, you didn't so, start yeah. there. You know, you didn't. You weren't born libertarian. Right. His, it's like his, okay, if I just pull out, okay, I go to prison. But we need his. Is that what I need? Right. Is that what I want? But just no? even what you were sharing here in this conversation, that knowledge needs to be passed on to the next mm-hmm. guy that is doing the next four years. Right. And like, if we don't have that, if mm-hmm. we don't like, then, then we're idiots. That's, that's where we go back yeah. to when our military was, you know, practically wiped out and we couldn't respond to anything and we couldn't defend ourselves. And, and so that knowledge share has to go and not just the knowledge share, right? The mm-hmm. respect, the, you know, uh, I, I can't say enough good things about that side of it as well. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a real pressure 
within the military just to be good human beings, mm -hmm. you know, and none of us join the military to go blow up people or, you know, it's the most ridiculous thing ever. Yeah. Um, and so if I would, you know, if I would get out now, there's a libertarian voice missing from every meeting yes. that I previously sat in. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, some people might mock that we change it from the inside, but how else are you going to change it? You're going to change the military from the outside? Right. I doubt it. Right. And so, yeah, let's have as many liberty-minded people within the military trying to limit the waste, trying to limit the bad tactics, the bad policy. Great point. You know, because even as a lower-level commander, you still have a sphere of influence. You know, when I go to my armory, I'm the guy. Mm -hmm. I'm the commander, and so what I say goes. And it's the same thing if I were to deploy, you know, as a commander— when I get there, you know, this is my sphere of influence, and we are going to do everything as best as we possibly can from a liberty-minded perspective and from a partnership-minded perspective of how can we solve the root of this problem. And so if you take out those sort of ideas and those sort of voices, what are you left with? You're yeah. just left with? We need, we need highly intelligent people yeah. in the military. We, yeah. need, we need libertarians in the military. We need balance in the military. You, you can't just you know say we're all stupid. You know. Yeah, I mean that's from a mass marketing perspective. For, yeah. It's just it's so it's suicide. Right. It's just stupid. It's keeping I, the it's club so, small. It's so ignorant. I that's that's the thing is you know my politics. You know I'm all over the place on stuff. And the fact is is like listening to George is refreshing. You know it, because I I totally respect his point of view. I respect your point of view. We argue all the time mm -hmm. on, online. And, and, that, and that's the thing is I, I hate this world that we live in where everything is absolutes and you're an evil, terrible, nasty person if you don't agree with me. Right. And, because I didn't grow up where you grew up. I didn't see – I always tell people like, you know, I have friends of mine that are, that are definitely on the, you know, uh, we need higher welfare and we need this and we need that. I, it drives me absolutely crazy. But the fact is is I try to understand where they came from. What what made them come to that belief system that because their environment is what educated them to get them where they were. Mm -hmm. And the more that we understand each other, the less we hate each other. And that's just that's just pure hate what he put out there. It's just it's just nonsense. And and again, I would I would love to see some facts. Like if he wants to call it a, a welfare welfare program, you know, we've got a hundred thousand veterans in central Indiana. 60,000 of them are registered with the VA. 40,000 veterans are walking around, many of them that should be collecting benefits. Uh, I think Matt Hall said over a billion dollars a year worth mm. of benefits are unpaid in Indiana. In just Indiana. In just central Indiana. Right. Yeah. A billion dollars of federal money that could be you know, flowing through this stuff. And so when you sit there and say that, you know, well, vets are just a bunch of you know, welfare mongers, how about the guy that died of asbestosis, you know, a few years ago because he worked on a Navy boiler, you know, his whole life? And did his his kids aren't even going to, you know, they're not even getting any money for that, you know? Mm -hmm. and like, it's just disgusting. It's it's really just it's really just disgusting, and it's and it's unproductive. Yep. All right. So final thoughts for this episode, George. Uh, go ahead, Doug. Doug first. That's it. I I I, I, I it was a great conversation, mm -hmm. and I I just want people. Again, you know, George said it from a, from
from an intervention standpoint with, you know, uh, from a war standpoint, but we need that, you know, on an American standpoint too, that if you, if you really have these doubts about veterans and you really think it's as monstrous as, as, as you think it is and, or red, like I snickered at one of the things that you were commenting out there because of course, a lot of the press that came out of the war zone was negative. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, right? You know, they weren't going to tell the stories of valor and and everything else. You know, I, I went to this movie last night, and there was a kid that two weeks out of two weeks out of basic or two weeks out of his training for medical, he went over there with the hundred and first, and some guys got in a firefight. Three guys were caught in a you know triangulation and were shot. Three mm. three shot. This kid ran down the hill, um, just said, I'm going. Ran down the hill. He was, uh, you know, 20, 21 years old or something like that. Ran down the hill, started bad, you know, bandaging him up, putting tourniquets on, everything else, and he gets shot. He gets shot and goes down. Two more guys run down there. He's the medic that got shot. He's telling them how to, he's telling the two guys what to do to keep treating the other two guys. And in his last breath, he says, I'm sorry. Mm. And as, that's the, you know, who the hell wouldn't you respect, you know, that with his last dying breath, his biggest thing was that he disappointed the guys around him, that he wasn't able to fix those guys. Like, holy shit. Yeah. You, what's what's you know, this movie called? Uh, no Greater Love. Okay. Yeah. It's a nogreaterlovemovie.com. But that's, and these guys want people to understand that. Like, Take away the big picture of whether these are the right tactics, wrong tactics, or whatever. Go look at what kind of men these are that are taking care of, and women over there that are taking care of each other. Uh, these guys are fucking amazing. How can people get a hold of you if they want to, Doug? Uh, they can get a hold of me through uh, my company's DK New Media downtown. And uh, I'm at the Speakeasy above the Hard Rock Cafe, so they can always find me cool. there. George? So kind of my final thought is more to people that are involved in their local or state or even national libertarian parties, you know, seek out the military. Don't, you know, push us aside as, you know, welfare queens. Seek us out because, I mean, I came to it because of someone else that was in the military, another libertarian. And there's a lot more of us or even far right wing conservatives that could easily be flipped to the libertarian party. And so seek us out, engage with us. And use that to kind of help bolster your strength. You know, like it or not, a lot of the public will elevate our opinions over other citizens. So why not use a powerful military voice to push liberty forward rather than pushing us to the side? Um, that's kind of my final thought on, on everything. All right, cool. Well, thanks so much for both of you being here. I appreciate it very much. Uh, for my part, I just want to thank everybody who listens. Uh, if you found anything of value in this podcast, which I'm sure you did because it was it was excellent to hear from these two gentlemen, then please share it and let people know that not all libertarians hate the military. <laughs> I think it's it's important for us. So often, I think my audience specifically uh, is a polite audience and a nice audience and we get stuck in the middle and that's why we're here and we don't often want to take the uncomfortable route of defending one side or the other and uh, I'm a lot of times misunderstood because I'm a confusing person for people to follow. One minute it seems like I'm a leftist, the next minute it seems like I'm a conservative, the next minute it seems like I'm crazy. So 
And and I just think that people need to speak up. If you have certain beliefs, if you if you it's so easy for the Arvins of the world to go out and say that they hate soldiers, but it seems to be more uncomfortable for libertarians that don't hate veterans to stand up and say that guy's wrong and I don't hate veterans and it shouldn't be that way and and if you want to build the the type of libertarian movement that you want you've got to start speaking out and and uh you know I've spoken out about Arvin and it's not something that I do because I don't really like to to infight too much but I think it's important for people to understand the distinction between these two ideologies within the libertarian movement of this flat childish thinking versus being an adult and really engaging the world in the way that it is as opposed to the way that we want it to be. We can do both, and we can do both with respect. So thanks to Doug Carr. Thanks to George for being here. And until then, I say be good to each other. Thank you for listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Get our other shows at wearelibertarians.com.